After all, these implements and texts designed by intellects of X to find evidently there's so much that hides. And though the saints of us divine in ancient feeding lines, their sentiment is just as hard to pluck from the vine. Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 101, where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeans, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and via the faint strains of a transmission from another dimension. Mention, mention, Ooh. mention. It is this part is like, two here, right? Part two of the Age of Apocalypse, and uh, there are eight number ones for uh, for the for the four issue miniseries, and we're going to cover all of them. Right. Uh, all eight of the uh, uh, the number ones for the four issue miniseries. Uh, they're all dated March nineteen ninety five. Before we get to those, we'll fill you in on what we talked about last week. Back in the long ago, Professor X founded the X Men. They stood for the peaceful coexistence between humans and mutants. And, of course, they battled against mutants, evil ones, and uh, also evil humans, in order to keep Xavier's dream alive. Somewhere along the way, Professor X found out he had a bouncing baby weirdo named David. (laughs) David was the mutant known as Legion, a poor kid with multiple personalities, and each of those personalities wielded a different mutant ability. Now, in order to help his father achieve this dream, David decided to go back to the past himself and kill the one man he viewed as standing in the way, Magneto. Xavier, being the every altruist, wound up jumping in front of Magneto as Legion blasted him, and he died. Uh, Remember, this all happened in the past. Now, around the same time, still in the past, the ancient mutant Apocalypse decides to ascend. The future changes. Professor Xavier never found the X-Men. The only man who remembers the way things ought to be is a time-displaced bishop. After trudging around for nigh on 20 years, he finally tracked down this world's all-new, all-different X-Men, and he's shocked to see they're led by Magneto. And he lets them all know it. Girl! (laughs) (laughs) This takes us into our first. And I think this is probably the one you'd look at as the flagship of the Age of Apocalypse line. And this is Astonishing X-Men number one. This is kind of the straw that stirs the drink in a way. Absolutely. And of course, all these books, they replace for a brief time. The regular yes. X-Men books. This yeah. one, uh, this book replaces Uncanny X-Men, and uh, the book's called, the title is Once More with Feeling, written by Scott Lobdell with art by Joe Majuara. Scott Lobdell, we met him last episode, so we're going to give you the fast version, or the less slow version, I guess. Uh, <laughs> he was born either August 24th, 1960, or at some point during 1963. We think maybe near Marlboro, New York. Didn't grow up a comic fan, and he only resorted to reading them while convalescing after lung surgery when he was seven. 17 years old, so we pegged that at either 1977 or 1980. All right. He studied psychology in college until he came to the realization that he didn't want to spend the rest of his life listening to everyone's problems. He completed two years. He worked on the college newspaper as a writer and a cartoonist, and he would perform interviews. Uh, He interviewed comics editor Al Milgram, and after that felt he might have an in at Marvel. For the next year and a half, he'd regularly travel to Marvel headquarters and drop off story synopses. Uh, his, uh, for him, that would be a five-hour round trip. Mm. 
And uh, while he did this, he began networking with a few Marvel editors. He received uh, multiple rejections. However, one from Tom DeFalco had a handwritten P.S. at the bottom that said, this story isn't as bad as the last story. Well, that that would send you off to the stratosphere right there. Mm-hmm. You that. Yep. <laughs> that, one, that one goes on the fridge. Uh, now, <laughs> he pitched a story to Tom DeFalco from Marvel Comics Presents. That's the anthology book from uh, the 80s and 90s there. Uh, using the uh, using obscure characters because uh, had he chosen a big-name character, it would have had to have been okayed by upwards of four editors. Um, and he, you know, got the gig there. Some of his uh, more, you know, notable things here, he wrote Alpha Flight number 106, uh, March 1992 cover date. That's the issue where North Star came out as gay. Uh, all royalties from this book went to the Elizabeth Glazer uh, Pediatric AIDS Foundation. And uh, he would become, for lack of a better term, the architect of the X-Men line. And he took part in many a crossover, including this one. Oh, yes. Uh, now, Joe Mad was born December 3rd, 1974, and he's half Portuguese. He attended the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan. And while still in high school, Joe was an intern at Marvel Comics working under Danny Fingeroff. First published work was an eight-page story that appeared in Marvel Comics Presents number 89, November 1991, cover date. It was What's Wrong With This Picture, a story starring Mojo that was written by Dan Slott. A young Dan Slott himself, I would mm-hmm. say. Prior to taking the gig on Uncanny X-Men, Joe provided art for X-Family Books Excalibur, numbers 57 through 58, and Deadpool, the Circle Chase miniseries in 1993. He joined Uncanny X-Men as the regular writer, regular in quotes, mm-hmm. uh, with issue 312, uh, May 1994, and less than a year later, he took part in this very event. Now, in the book, we open with Magneto preparing his X-Men for what they what very well may be a suicide mission. Yes, Magneto says, I'm not even going to try to sugarcoat this, my friends. Anyone willing to take part in this raid isn't likely to make it back alive. Now, the X-Men, remember this is Quicksilver, Iceman, Sabretooth, Morph, Storm, Nightcrawler, and Banshee. They all scoff at his statement uh, as taking part in such danger is basically Tuesday to these folks. Nightcrawler says, If we can't trust our fearless and fearless leader, mine friends, Nick Var, who can we trust? Come on, Kurt, you should know better than to ask such an open-ended question when Magneto's anywhere within, you know, within earshot. Right. Because Magneto pipes in with, Trust, Kurt? That's exactly why I'm so concerned. I've recently come across information that I believe it irrefutable that has prompted me to question not only everything we stand for, my X-Men, but our very existence as individuals, not just our place in the world, but rather, if this world should exist at all. That's when Storm says, You can't possibly be upset over the ramblings of the stranger bishop, one lone madman. Oh, indeed he is, Storm. Oh, you bet he is. However, before they can argue all that much about it, a portal blinks open over their (laughs) heads, and from it fly Blink and Sunfire. Real name, mm. Shiro Yoshida. First appearance was X-Men number 64, January 1970, cover date, created by Roy Thomas and Don Heck. Of his creation, Roy Thomas would say, I wanted to add a young Japanese or Japanese-American whose mother had been at Hiroshima or Nagasaki as a corresponding character to the X-Men, whose parents were, at the time, assumed to have been at the Manhattan Project. Stanley didn't give me a good reason for rejecting the character. He just didn't want to, I think. I didn't bring it up again, but when I came back to the book with Neil Adams, I created Sunfire, who was pretty much the character I wanted to do some years earlier. I didn't make him an X-Man right away. By that time, Stan gave me a little more free reign. In fact, 
He was included in Giant Size X-Men number one, along with Banshee, precisely because I had gone around creating some international mutants with the goal of expanding the team at some time. As Roy said, Shira wouldn't join the X-Men right away. They were actually on opposing sides a time or two. Also, like Roy said, Sunfire would be part of that all-new, all-different X-Men during the giant size rescue from Krakoa, the Living Island. Uh, he didn't stick around all that long, though, and didn't really even show up much later on. Uh, last we saw of Shiro was during the Gold Strike Force mission into the Rift, where they brought Mikhail Rasputin back into the real world. And, I guess, in this alternate world. Certainly. Now, yeah. And he, he does have a really cool uh, really cool look, though. I do like this design a whole lot. Uh, now, Sunfire lands with a whoosh. His powers are out of control. Magneto is able to get him to relax enough to power down, just in time for a rather large prelate to stick his head through the portal. Before that prelate can strike, but with him still sticking out halfway, Blink closes the portal with a splooch. So, you know, no muss, no fuss. No, that's it. Uh, when the dust settles, Magneto asks Shiro for a status report. Yeah, he says, The latest reported calling, the one in Seattle. Apocalypse claimed ignorance in light of the Kelly Pact. Did he not? He promised to punish all those involved. Blink and I discovered he was lying. The callings have begun again, in earnest. They're being carried out, personally, by Apocalypse's son. Holocaust. We shift scenes to Manhattan, where an Apocalypse loyalist, some dude named Rex, visits with the main man himself. Now, it's worth noting that, ne- that Rex has the same pointy hairstyle as Legion. Yeah. It, this isn't heading anywhere, but you might imagine lots of X-Fans' minds went immediately there. It, it bothered you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, time. big time, big time. <laughs> now, Rex enters the stronghold, and he crunches human bones with each step. Yeah, he says... My lord, these skulls, there must be hundreds. Thousands, Rex. Hundreds of thousands, actually. I find the aroma soothing. They were the weak, and such is their fate. Now, it's revealed that the mishap where that prelate, whose name is Delgado, got splooched by Blink was all part of Apocalypse's plan. Delgado made it through the girl's portal as we assumed he would. And just as you, in your brilliance, predicted, they sealed it on the poor weak fool as well. Did you pinpoint their location? Uh, not yet, sir, but it's certain to only be a matter of time. Apocalypse smiles. Now, back in Westchester, or more accurately, the dead zone formerly known as Westchester, Rogue and Blink stand over Sunfire, who is resting on an observation table. We learn that Holocaust that this Holo, uh, that Holocaust destroyed Japan, like all of it, not just a couple of cities. And uh, Shiro wants the X Men to join with him to take on Apocalypse's baby boy. Gambit pops his head in and tells Rogue he couldn't leave without saying goodbye. So they go for a walk, and Blink is clearly the displeased by this. Indeed, we hop outside where. Yeah, Rogue says, I probably won't be here when y'all get back. Gambit says, You're going with them for sure to stop the unstoppable. Or die trying, sugar. No big ting chair. No, don't know how we're even supposed to get to the other side of the universe for this McCann crystal ting that Bishop Keep Fella keeps babbling about. Better alone getting back for sure now. They turn and face each other. Seeing as we want to be seeing each other again, 
I don't suppose you'd consent to a kiss goodbye now, child. One for the road. Remy, please. I'm married to your best friend. Wait a second, best friend? I don't know. What the hello? <laughs> he was my best friend, Cher. But that all changed a long, long time ago. I guarantee. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as they're just about to kiss, Blink pops in to uh, block the Randy Cajun with uh, Baby Charlie. <laughs> uh, Gambit and Rogue Pod Company. Uh, we'll be checking in with his adventure shortly in the Gambit in the External section. And elsewhere in the mansion, Magneto well, thinks to himself, I mean, what else is he going to do? No one's hanging out. Really, yeah, uh, he thinks, is this where it began for you, old friend? Is this where you came as a child to dream your dream so long ago, Charles Xavier? You'd look up at the stars, convinced you could change the entire world. In Israel, in our youth, I once questioned just how much one man is capable of accomplishing. By your absence, you've answered that question. We're sure he could have got on for several more minutes, but thankfully Nightcrawler arrives to break his train of thought. Thank God. <laughs> and here's where Magneto <laughs> issues his marching orders to be followed up on the rest of the ex-family of books. He says, Nothing will stop us from working with the Eurasian High Council to liberate the human populace along the northern east coast. And that will take place in Amazing X-Men. And Nightcrawler says, It is more than that, Eric. It is his bishop fellows they have planted in order to prompt you to doubt. You who never doubted all these years. This is why you've asked me and my mother to track down a woman named Destiny in a place that may or may not exist. From what I understand, Peter and Katya have been dispatched to Seattle. Nightcrawler and his mother, Mystique, they hunt for Destiny, and that'll be followed up on an Excalibur, or as we'll probably be calling it several times, Excalibre. That's right. Uh, Colossus and Kitty will head to the Pacific Northwest in Generation Next, and we'll discuss them both soon. After another flashback to have uh, Chuck was off by his own kid, we pop over to the X-Men's Hangar Bay. They're getting ready to head off to Chicago to fight Holocaust. Sabretooth is in on this, and we learn that he once learned worked alongside Holocaust and sees this as an opportunity for penance. And probably revenge. Probably mostly revenge. Yeah, probably. Sabretoothy thing to do. Uh, Quicksilver and Magneto have a touching father and son chat. Yeah, Magneto says... I'm leaving the X-Men in your care, Pietro. You? But, but, Father, your place is... Here, yes. Any other day of the year, but these are dire times. If we don't make it back, I'm going to need you to remind the others about our goals. To remind them, no sacrifice is too great. But most of all, remind them to floss. Of course, sir. But did, did you say floss? Uh, you know, Petey, for the fastest mutant in the world... This is actually Morph posing as Magneto, oh. and Morph grows a gigantic pair of lips with which to lay one hell of a smackaroonie on Pietro's puss. Hey, he says, You can be pretty slow on the uptake. I thought for sure that homicidal hordes was a dead giveaway. Yes, he mentioned homicidal hordes in, like, the fifth paragraph of his Magneto-like soliloquy. I mean, just from the amount of words he used, he had us completely fooled that he was Magneto, though. <laughs> and nobody else in the Age of Apocalypse likes the sound of his own voice that much. No, not even Apocalypse, who no. definitely also loves the sound of his own voice a lot. <laughs> just not as much. No. Uh, now, it's here that it's confirmed that Morph was formerly known as the Changeling back in the long ago. 
Uh, Bishop watches all this. Uh, he watches the astonishing X-Men leave on the, what is very likely to be a suicide mission, and he wonders why. I don't understand. Why are they throwing their lives away? What do they propose to do would seem impossible. Quicksilver replies with, You need to ask, Bishop? You who claim to come from a place where the sacred Xavier and his X-Men have actually made a difference? Is this then the reality you're asking us to recreate? A world populated by cowards? And then Quicksilver walks away. It is our world nonetheless, and we will fight for it. Indeed. And I'm certain the professor wouldn't have it any other way. And that was Astonishing X-Men. Next up, Generation Next, number one. (laughs) This was, of course, changed from Generation X. Uh, Story from the top by Scott Lobdell and uh, Chris Bacolo. Or Bacolo. I can never say his name. I say say six or seven different ways. Yeah, I say each way. (laughs) (laughs) Scott Lobdell, we met him. Yeah, we already did his, so we'll go to Chris Bacolo for this this telling of his (laughs) tale. Uh, Born August 23rd, 1965 in Portage La Prairie, Canada. Though Canadian, he was raised in Southern California. Would have become a carpenter if not for his allergy to dust. Uh, Chris studied at Cal State in Long Beach and majored in graphic art and drew for some underground comics during college. He would move on. He would get his first jobs at DC Vertigo, drawing Sandman and Death. His first published work was Sandman number 12, January 1990 cover date, though he'd already received his assignment for Peter Milligan, written Shade the Changing Man. But more on that in a second. He was selected by Neil Gaiman to draw both Death miniseries, Death the High Coast of Living in 1993 and Death the Time of Your Life in 1996. We mentioned Shade the Changing Man. Uh, part of DC Comics' British Invasion, Shade the Changing Man was a Peter Milligan pen title that hung out sort of on the fringes of the DC universe, just like a lot of those books of the time, yeah. uh, before being transplanted into the Vertigo imprint upon its launch in January 1993. Chris Bocciolo is listed as co-creator for this version of Shade, though uh, this series hit just a few months after the Ditko version left the Suicide Squad, so maybe it's still the original, or maybe it's not. Oh, I, <laughs> I think know. it's been too long since either of us have read it to really give yeah, really. a uh, really give an or, or even the the trapping really the I'm more don't remember the trappings of Ditko's shade which is much more ambiguous as I recall it than is, even shade yeah. is which is which is difficult to say but there <laughs> it's true now this title would run for seventy issues uh, though Bachelo only only drew thirty eight uh, he'd hop over to Marvel and he'd pencil a few issues here and there including X Men Unlimited number one. Uh, the first three issues of Ghost Rider 2099, also a backup in Incredible Hulk number 400. He would uh, join up with Scott Lobdell on Generation X, which brings us right about here. Yeah, and uh, this uh, book opens amid a great big explosion, and from it hops, Chamber. Real name Jonathan Starsmore. His first appearance was Generation X number 1, November 1994, cover date, created by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo. A British mutant who, in the Prime Universe, had his power manifest in an explosion. He actually might have been the explosion. You see, he's basically a living furnace with psionic energies bubbling away inside of him. He joined the Massachusetts Academy in Generation X, which was only four months ago, real time, so that's all we really know about him at this point. Mm-hmm. Now, he dodges all sorts of obstacles, uh, seemingly narrowly escaping with his life. Since this is an X-Men comic, though, you probably already figured out that this is actually just a training scenario. Uh, now, he checks his status with know-it-all. Real name, Claudia. 
first appearance right here. Uh, though it's very likely intended for this is supposed to be like for whatever the hell Scott Lobdell planned for <laughs> the Generation X mutant M. Yeah. So uh, we'll uh, we'll mention her now. Monade Saint Croix. First appearance, Uncanny X-Men number 316, September 1994, cover date created by Scott Lobdell and Joe Majuara. Here's the thing. In the Prime Universe, we've got this weird relationship between M, of course, Monet St. Croix, a character called Penance, who we meet in the first issue of Generation X, also Emplate, a villain that we meet there. And uh, we, we actually discussed all of this back in Cosmic Treadmill episode 30. That's available in the archives for you. Uh, it was eventually revealed by a different writer. This is James Robinson, around Generation X number 31 or so, October 1997, that Monet was actually an amalgamation of her two younger sisters, one of whom was autistic, which explains why Monet would appear to space out every now and again during the series. Oh, uh, M-Plate, okay. was, <laughs> M-Plate was their brother who had himself a bone marrow addiction, so he, would, he had these little mouths on his hands that were really disgusting, and he would suck bone marrow. Uh, Penance was, in actuality, the real Monet, who was trapped in her spiky body due to one of M-Plate's spells. Eventually, everyone round, wound up in their right bodies again, uh, but the whole thing really was a mess. They, they never heard of Occam's Razor over there in the book. No. <laughs> they never knew about that? Okay. Uh, Lobdell had planned for Monet to be a false persona to be used only when the M-Twins were merged together, and know-it-all was supposed to be a hint to all of that stuff. Uh, before he can get a complete report, though, our man Jono is noinked away by Husk. Real name, Paige Guthrie. First appearance, ROM, annual number three, November 1984, cover date. Created by Bill Metlow and William Johnson. He's one of the Guthrie clan. His first appearance in ROM was just as a background character. He was revealed as a mutant during New Warriors X-Force crossover, Child's Play. Husk joined Generation X following the events of the Phalanx Covenant. Uh, These kids flirt a little bit, with Paige actually giving Jono a peck on the cheek. Something, if she were to try it in the Prime Universe, would leave her with a pair of flaming lips. Yes, because the explosion actually blew off the bottom half of Chambers' face. Yeesh. So it was a uh, he always had energy pouring out there. Uh, then from the below, from below rocks, we meet Mondo. Real name unknown. For all we know, her care, it's actually Mondo. Uh, first appearance, Generation X number three, January 1995 cover date, created by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo. This is a Samoan mutant who joined Generation X. Uh, spoiler alert, he'd later be revealed as a bad guy. Or a bad plant simulacrum guy. All right. Infiltrated the team for Black Tom Cassidy. Uh, Cassidy is uh, the... Uh, Massachusetts Academy headmaster Banshee's cousin, and uh, he doesn't like him very much, but uh, we don't know any of that yet. Not yet. (laughs) Now, they battle, and it's no longer clear whether or not this is a training exercise, but it totally is. Uh, This melee is then broken up by a fella we all might be familiar with, Colossus, real name Piotr Rasputin. First appearance was Giant Size X-Men number one, the... the, uh, Krakoa Living Island Issues, May 1975, cover date, created by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. Uh, the Russian mutant Colossus joined the all-new X-Men uh, and was part of the rescue mission to save the old X-Men from Krakoa, the Living Island. Dave Cockrum recalled, We needed a strong guy for the team, so I drew up a strong guy. The character's armor just kind of fell into place. He was accepted pretty much as is, except that I'd given him bare legs because it seemed only logical that if we're going to show him armored up, the legs should be bare like the arms. But Len Wein didn't like male characters with bare legs. 
Wait a second, wait a second. You're telling me that, that this is a character that wasn't a reject from the for, Legion of Superheroes? Like for once, uh, yeah, an actual <laughs> character from Cockrum that was not meant that? for the Legion, yeah. Uh, following the Krakoa ordeal, Colossus remained with the X-Men and took part in many of the team's new se- uh, seminal missions. Uh, all those ones we've mentioned before, plus he was brainwashed by Arcane into thinking he was the evil proletarian. Uh, during a mission to the Savage Land, he gets kind of close with a woman named Nereel and briefly thought he was the father of her child. Now, speaking of romance, he'd be linked to the young lady we're going to be meeting very shortly. Uh, That would end, however, after the Secret Wars, because during the Secret Wars, Colossus became infatuated with an alien woman named Jaji. Following the fall of the mutants, Colossus would be part of the Outback X-Men. After stepping through the Siege Perilous, he'd emerge as an amnesiac uh, who'd create the identity of Peter Nicholas, an artist. Uh, Colossus was always portrayed as being an artist. Uh, He'd come to his senses around the time of the Muir Island Saga, after which he'd join the X-Men's Gold Strike Force. With them, he would travel into the Rift to save his brother Mikhail. Following the Executioner song, the Legacy Virus was unleashed on the world, and the first victim was Pyotr's sister, Ilyana. During her funeral, Colossus would turn his back on the X-Men and join Magneto's acolytes. Uh, currently in the AOA here, uh, Colossus ain't in the best place. His brother, Mikhail, has, been taken, has taken up as one of Apocalypse's horsemen, and it doesn't seem like he's got the best of relationships with Magneto and the X-Men. The Gen Nexters all dogpile onto Peter, uh, which tells you that, yes, the training exercise is still ongoing. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure Colossus would have pounded them into paste. Pretty much. He would have just swatted them away or, you know, smashed them between his fists. Uh, then enters Shadowcat, real name, Kitty Pride. First appearance was X-Men number 129, January 1980, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Uh, An editorial directive dictated that the X-Men needed to bring the whole school for mutants thing back to the fore. John Byrne named Kitty after a classmate from his art school and modeled the character on a young Sigourney Weaver. We meet Kitty as a 13-year-old who discovers her ability to phase through solid objects. She joined the X-Men and go through a ton of costume and code name changes right off the bat uh, into some pretty cute kind of like uh, montages. Yes. Only settling on Shadowcat after the events of the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries that ran from 1984 to 1985. She, or her older self, was the main protagonist of Days of Future Past. She'd be romantically linked to that fellow we just met a second ago. Until Secret Wars. Kitty adopted the tiny space dragon, Lockheed, and they would become sort of inseparable. Uh, When the new mutants came to be, Kitty was briefly demoted, and she wasn't too pleased about being put with the X-Babies. That's what she called them. Uh, But she didn't much mind when they rescued her from the White Queen. (laughs) They they weren't babies anymore, were they, Kitty? (laughs) She was pretty, they were pretty cool guys. Uh, Now, following the mutant massacre, Kitty, along with fellow X-Men Nightcrawler and Phoenix, they crossed the pond and joined Excalibur where she'd do a whole lot of fighting bad guys and have a whole lot of crushes. Yeah, that was sort of like her summer abroad or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, now Kitty starts swiping away at the students with her very Wolverine-y claws, slashing Paige especially good, but not that that's really a problem for Paige. Paige responds by transmorphing her left arm into a diamond-sharp spike and running it straight through her mentor, which isn't really a problem either because, you know... Kitty is intangible, so it's sort of a fruitless task, but the training regimen continues and Chambers sets off an explosion. Meanwhile, Kitty has Paige pinned down and is about to strike the killing blow when she's interrupted by the sticky fingers of... 
Skin. Real name? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty gross. Real name, Angelo Espinosa. First appearance, Uncanny X-Men number 317, October 1994 cover date, created by Lobdell and Joe Mad. Uh, this is a former gang member from East L.A. He uh, wound, up, wound up faking his own death in order to get out of the life. Um, he hemmed and hawed a little while about joining the Academy here, but ultimately did accept an invitation and made the move to Massachusetts. And uh, if you're familiar with the uh, the episode, uh, episode 30 of Cosmic Treadmill, where we discussed him further, he's kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> he's, he's not a pleasant individual to be around. Uh, back in the story here, Skin wraps Kitty up in his flexible phalanges and puts a stop to the struggle. Oh, and we also meet uh, this uh, other guy. Yeah, Vicente Simetta. Uh, first appearance is right here. The 616 hmm. version of Vicente would make his debut nearly a year later in Generation X number 12, February 1996 cover day. Uh, covered date. He was a bad guy, a part of M. Plate's gang, but for now, right now, this is all we got. Mm-hmm. Uh, know-it-all calls time and the exercise is over. And I think he also says he's going to go, he's going to bring his ball home and he's not playing anymore. <laughs> then there's a telepathic message from Magneto. I thought it was established that uh, that they didn't have a telepath and that's why Rogue was going to be the one to extract Ooh. Bishop's memories back in Alpha? Yeah, mm. Yeah, I got nothing for that. I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Kitty and Pete head off to meet with Magneto, Magneto, who shares with them the existence and odd visions of the man we know as Bishop. He claims to be from another reality, a world where 20 years ago, a tragedy occurred that fractured all reality across the cosmic continuum. Charles Xavier, whose body I held when he breathed his last, was murdered by his own son, and the death was never meant to be. An entire world is paying the price for that mistake since that day. Magneto continues sharing the current dispersal of a few key X-Men members and associates and gives them an idea of what he might expect from them. Nightcrawler and Gambit are bringing me the resources I need to verify Bishop's claim that his existence is a temporal aberration. And we'll follow up with both of them shortly. It may very well fall upon you and your charges to acquire the means with which to travel back in time. Hey, so there's the purpose for this book. All right, hey. that's good. We finally, we finally got it. Uh, Magneto then orders Colossus to head to Core Portland to the child labor camps where he can rescue his thought, once thought lost sister. And that's a magic. Real name, Ilyana Rasputin. First appearance is Giant Size X-Men number 1, May 1979, cover date, created by Ween and Cockrum. She first appeared as the Colossus's unnamed sister during his own first appearance. Colossus' mutant ability manifested when he saved her from a runaway tractor on their collective farm. Wouldn't be referred to by name until Uncanny X-Men number 145, May 1981 cover date. At six years old, Ilyana was summoned to the Limbo Dimension by the demon Belasco. The X-Men went after her and rescued her, only after she'd aged seven years, seven Convenient years. Uh, Ilyana creates the Soul Sword and rises up, taking over Limbo. Uh, she'd also join those new mutants, but that doesn't seem to be like such a big deal after taking over Limbo, quite frankly. Uh, you know, that's kind of like the president joined uh, the Boy Scouts. Anyway, uh, during an adventure with the new mutants, they all get stuck in Limbo, which is rather embarrassing for magic since she's supposed to run the place, but uh, she runs off and hurls her Soul Sword into a port. She runs off and hurls her soul sword into a portal. (laughs) That was a good one. Uh, After which, the new mutants find a seven-year-old Ilyana, so everything is snapped back. Uh, Young Ilyana returns to Russ to live with her parents until they're murdered. 
Then Magic returns to Westchester to live with the X-Men, where she becomes the first victim of the legacy virus. What a crappy year, right? Yeah, what a bad, bad time <laughs> to be her, boy. Don't worry, though. She will eventually get better. But as of the Age of Apocalypse, she's still dead. All right. And that's how we end Generation Next. We hop to our next book. This is Gambit and the Externals, number one. This was, of course, X-Force. Uh, the story is called Some of Us Looking to the Stars by Fabian Niciesa and Tony Daniel. Let's meet Fabian. Born December 31st, 1961 in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Moved to, the, moved to the United States when he was four and he grew up in New Jersey. Fabian taught himself to read and write by reading comic books. He'd attend Rutgers University and graduated in 1983 with a degree in advertising and public relations. While in college, Fabian interned for ABC Television. He worked for Berkeley Publishing Group until 1985. Uh, Berkeley Books was a mass-market paperback publisher that, at this time, was owned by G.P. Putnam Sons. Uh, in 1985, Nisieza joined the staff at Marvel Comics, initially as a manufacturing you know, production department assistant later moving to the promotions department as an advertising manager. During this time, Fabian began taking freelance writing assignments, writing short stories for Marvel's promo magazine, Marvel Age. Nicias's first published comic story was in Cyforce No. 9, July 1987 cover date, a title in Marvel's short-lived New Universe imprint. Fabian would stay on Cyforce from 16, February 1988 cover date, until 32, June 1989 cover date. This led to fill-in work on such titles as classic X-Men, for which he provided backup stories, and in the Marvel Annual's 1989 summer crossover, Atlantis Attacks. After Tom DeFalco, then Marvel's editor-in-chief, created a superhero team, the New Warriors, he gave the titular, titular series to Nisiesa. In 1990, Fabian uh, began short runs on comics like Alpha Flight. He did issues 87 through 101, Avengers. He wrote 317 to 325, and also uh, some issues of Avengers Spotlight. Uh, Fabian also wrote the miniseries Nomad. That was a four-issue deal in 1990, which in turn led to, led to him writing the ongoing series of Nomad, which he wrote the first 25 issues of. That was May 1992 through May 1994. In 1990, Nisiesa became editor of Marvel's children's imprint that started Star Comics, and Star Comics dissolved within a year. Oh, but it left an imprint on our hearts. It did, it did. Now, at this point, uh, this is when <coughs> Fabian would leave Marvel staff, and he became a freelancer full-time. Uh, Fabian wrote the first four issues of the National Football League-approved superhero, NFL Super Pro. That was October 1991 through February 1992. Uh, he also wrote the four-issue miniseries Adventures of Captain America, which is also known as the Adventures of Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty. That ran from September 1991 through January 1992 with art from Kevin McGuire and this story, this is a retelling of uh, the Golden Age origin story of Captain America With some nice McGuire artwork. Absolutely. Uh, in 1991, ECA is joined with artist Rob Liefeld in co-plotting and writing the final three issues of The New Mutants, that was 98 to 100 In these issues, Fabian co-created Deadpool and Shatter's Liefeld created Deadpool? I didn't... Uh, I, I, he mentioned that a couple I think times. I, did he, I never heard him say that. Huh? <laughs> uh, Fabian co-created Deadpool and Shatterstar, as well as the mutant team X-Force. Liefeld and Nicieza then uh, produced an ongoing X-Force title, beginning with number one in August 1991. Initially, Nicieza was a scripter only, but after Rob Liefeld left Marvel, he drew to issue number nine, plot into issue number 12. Fabian became its full-time writer and remained until 1995. By the end of 1992, Nisiesa became regular scripter for X-Men Volume 2, beginning with number 12, that was September 1992 cover date, 
art, art handled mostly by Andy Kubert. In 1992, Nisiesa wrote the two-issue miniseries, Cable, Blood and Metal, October through November, and penciled by John Romita Jr. He wrote Deadpool's first solo miniseries, Deadpool The Circle Chase, in 1993, art by Joe Maguera. Over the next three years, Fabian Nicieza was heavily in the X-Men mix while it went through some of the franchise's best-known crossovers and events, like Executioner Song, Phalanx Covenant, and, of course, The Age of Apocalypse, 1995-1996. Across the table, we got Tony Daniel. Antonio Salvador Daniel was born somewhere in these United States. Uh, His first professional work was for Comico's Elemental Sexy Lingerie Special that came out for the 1993 Chicago Comic-Con. Daniel would hop over to Marvel and uh, take over art chores on X-Force after Greg Capullo flew the coop over to Toddtown. His first issue was number 28, November 1993, and he'd hang around long enough to take part in this Age of Apocalypse. Uh, Tony Daniel has a long and storied career now, but this is definitely a dude early in his career, so we'll we'll have more to say about him and his accomplishments in the back end. I think we may have. Did we talk about him during the Batman R.I.P. episode? I can't remember. I believe so. It, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's almost funny to see him so early, where it's like just oh, so you, little. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he ends up doing quite a lot. Uh, so now this book we open in the treat in the streets of New York City, where we meet a girl who was caught stealing medical supplies and is currently running for her life. She is Jubilee. Real name is Jubilation Lee. First appeared in Uncanny X-Men number two hundred forty-four, May nineteen eighty-nine, cover date. Created by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri. Jubilee was an orphan in Beverly Hills. Her parents were murdered by a pair of hitmen. She'd escaped the orphanage and move into the Hollywood Mall, where she used her fireworks powers to entertain the patrons. But they don't let any orphans stay as long as they can do fireworks. As long as they can do some work. I don't know, exactly. Something to, you know, earn your keep. You can stay in the mall. Uh, One day she ran into Storm, Rogue, Dazzler, and Psylocke in the midst of a girl's day out. This is while the X-Men were living in the outback. So they were able to visit the mall via one of Gateway's portals. That's uh, how they they got around. Traveled back then. (laughs) So Jubilee follows them back through that very same portal. While down under... Jubilee hides out in the X-Men's base, and sneaking around, she happens across Wolverine being tortured by the Reavers. This is that semi-iconic scene of Wolverine being crucified on a giant X that I think a lot of us know, even if you haven't read it, you know the uh, panel, or the really the page. The cover, yeah. yeah. Uh, she helps them, and they escape to Madripoor, and that's just a whole big thing happens there. Point is, she eventually becomes Wolverine's sort of sidekick and joins the X-Men. After the Muir Island Saga, she joins the Blue Strike Force, and after the Phalanx Covenant, she gets demoted and de-aged. It joins Generation <laughs> Jubilee, joins Generation X. Uh, in the story, Jubilee trips and finds herself staring down several barrels of the Infinites. Suddenly, her backup arrives. They are the Externals, and they consist of, well, they call him Guido, but we know him better as Strong Guy. Real name, Guido Caracella. First appearance, New Mutants, number 29, July 1985, Covet created by Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, he first appeared as a bodyguard for Lila Cheney, and we'll meet her in actually just a few seconds. Uh, he joins the all-new X-Factor during, uh, following the Muir Island saga. It was revealed during a visit with uh, Doc Samson that he became wealthy after his parents were killed by falling space debris. That sucks, but I guess... Uh, you get, you get money, it's good. Yeah. Uh, his powers manifested when some bullies were picking on him. So he went from a skinny nerd to a totally huge and buffed out nerd. 
This uh, might be advantageous in battle for, you know, lifting things and hitting people hard. However, it does leave him in constant pain, which he compensates or maybe overcompensates for with an outgoing personality and a staggering sense of humor. Is that how people deal with pain normally? That's not how I deal with pain. Laughter is the best medicine. I'm horrible when I'm in pain. Forget it. (laughs) Now, he came up with the name Strong Guy during an X Factor press conference because he was the strong guy. Very good. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) And also... Because Peter David had actually had no idea what else to call him. You know, you know I'll be honest, you, you start cracking out these names fast and furious, you know, they can't all be winners, what are you going to yeah, do? Yeah, a right? strong guy will slip through. I like him, but he obviously is sort of an allusion to the Charles Atlas uh, story. Seems in, like, In yeah. a sense, yeah, it's, it's definitely something to that. And now, uh, R- Roberto da Costa is here, also known as Sunspot. First appearance, Marvel graphic novel number four, November 1982, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud. He's one of the original New Mutants, a scooter whiz, a son of Brazilian. He's a scooter, a soccer whiz scooter, a soccer <laughs> whiz, and a son of Brazilian businessman and Hellfire Club member Emmanuel da Costa. During his time with the New Mutants, he'd almost become a monster uh, after being injected with that same drug that made Cloak and Dagger the way they are. And he also fell in love with the alien Gossamer. He'd leave the New Mutants after Cable took over, and he found himself under the tutelage of the ex- external known as Gideon. Uh, who was also a businessman. His action figure came with a briefcase, but to be fair, it did have a knife sticking out of it, so you knew that he meant business. Yeah. <laughs> he, meant, he meant pointy business, uh, along with the other stuff. Now, uh, he, Sunspot would eventually join up with X-Force around the same time as the villain Rainfire began to appear, because Rainfire was originally intended to be a messed-up future version of Sunspot, you see. But things changed, and that never materialized. No, it turned out to be something altogether different that I really couldn't explain. All right. <laughs> One of those things. Uh, together, they make short work of the Infinites, and they head over to a tenement in order to drop off the medical supplies and to rendezvous with Lila Cheney. Uh, first appearance, New Mutants Annual, number one, November 1984, created by Chris Claremont and Bob McLeod. She's an intergalactic mutant rock star. Oh. She'd uh, meet the New Mutants at one of her concerts. At the time, Lila saw herself as a great, great thief, perhaps the greatest thief, and uh, was attempting to steal the Earth. Yeah, the Earth. Um, in order to sell, <laughs> in order to sell the population to intergalactic black market slavers, uh, she'd get over it. <laughs> And she'd start a relationship with the new mutant, Sam Cannonball Guthrie. Uh, Lila is Gambit's human liaison. Uh, human, in quotes. Uh, right. They join up and uh, they head underground to reconnoiter with uh, Gambit himself. Only, Gambit ain't here. Instead, they find Magneto. Looks as though a fight's about to go down. Uh, luckily for the externals, their boss man arrives just in the nick of time to cool everyone down. Gambit says, Believe it or not, Eric came here with me now. How's about a little exposition on our man Gambit? Remy LeBeau, Gambit, adopted into the Thieves' Guild of New Orleans as a child. When the heir to the throne, Holocaust, slew Condra, the Guild's immortal benefactor in one of the last battles for succession. Wait a second. Wait a second. You can kill an immortal? He fled for his life and found sanctuary with the wandering nomads called the X-Men. After a couple of years, he had no choice but to leave them. He had fallen in love, but she married another, and it was too painful to stay. For the last two years, he has led the externals, 
his band of roguish outsiders. Roguish. I, I, I kick a man while he's down. <laughs> Yikes, I know. Bad choice of words. <laughs> Irritating mosquitoes biting at the coarse hide of the empire. His charming smile belies his fear. His insects have been asked to bite with the ferocity of a lion. Gambit informs his team that Magneto has enlisted them to steal a chunk of the Emkron crystal. We shift scenes to an Infinite's Fedayeen station in Lower Manhattan, where we meet Commandant Richter. Real name, Julio Richter. Convenient, that. (laughs) His first appearance, X-Factor number 17, June 1987 cover, created by the Simonsons. Richter was introduced as uh, one of X-Factor's wards, kind of like the New Mutants, but not. Uh, Now, these kids would have their own miniseries called X-Terminators in 1988. Other members included Boom Boom, Fire Fist, Leech, Artie, Skids, and WizKid. Are you, are you, you're not talking about the Tandy computer comic? So that's not <laughs> it that? seems like okay, it doesn't. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, we might meet some of these kids during the Age of Apocalypse. But then again, we might not. We'll see if we get to those particular issues. We'll see. Uh, Victor would eventually join the New Mutants, but would leave just before the X-Force shift. It wouldn't be long before Victor came back. He'd join X-Force just before the Executioner's Song. And he'd become fast friends with uh, Shatterstar. Their relationship was left nebulous for most of the 1990s, but we all knew what was going on. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think you know what time it is. Uh, he'd quit and rejoin X-Force at least one more time prior to the Age of Apocalypse. Yeah, just can't stay still. No, he's, you know, I mean, he's not, a, he's not a joiner, or at least he's not a stayer, you know? He likes to move around. Uh, Richter's pretty cheesed off for a couple of reasons. Uh, the externals got away here, and also Apocalypse and the Horsemen are hanging out like, Right here, like just right in front of them, and he didn't even know about it. He'd uh, really dug the opportunity to show his stuff and maybe move up in the ranks. Come on, dude, you suck. Yeah. <laughs> and when you suck, it's really when you, when you're not good at your job, it's really good just to blend in. Just start try to stay in the back. You know what I mean? Don't make yeah, a lot don't of make noise, a lot exactly. of noise. Don't yeah. don't act up too much because <laughs> apocalypse is just gonna crush your head like a grape. Yeah. Uh, now we jump back to the underground Morlock tunnels, and uh, Magneto talks. A lot. Um, He also leads the externals to one of Apocalypse's secret chambers. During this walk, he overhears Lila refer to Gambit as her lover. Uh, Gambit manages to pick the lock of an underground chamber. Once its doors open, the team is shocked by what they find inside. It's Apocalypse's library, apparently, and it's mostly a bunch of holograms depicting the universe. Uh, Gambit's getting a bit antsy because, really... This this little trek shouldn't have been this easy. No, and it is pretty dang easy, you know, just kind of walked right in. Gambit ought to know you don't ask questions you don't want the answer to, because just then, the Madri burst in. And would you look at that, they're mostly dupes of... Jamie Madrox, whose first appearance was Giant Size Fantastic Four number 4, February 1975, cover date, created by Chris Claremont, Len Wein, and John Buscema. When Jamie Madrox was born and the doctor slapped him on the butt, he multiplied. Uh, mutant powers don't usually manifest until puberty, but we'll allow it because that's a pretty great story and great visual to think about happening. Also because he's actually a changeling. Not the changeling, though. It's a changeling. Uh, changelings, to hear some dude much later on explain it, are the predecessors of mutants and develop their powers at birth. After a tragedy at the Madrox home, Jamie heads to New York to meet with Reed Richards, who passes the buck to Professor X, who passes the buck to Moira <laughs> McTaggart? You know, you don't want to deal with them. No. So Jamie worked on Muir Island. Uh, he joined up with the Fallen Angels for an eight-issue limited series. 
April 1987 to November 1987 cover date. This was a strange ramshackle team that included Vanisher, Gomi, Ariel, Chance, Sunspot, Siren, Boom Boom, Moon Boy, Devil Dinosaur, and Warlock. <laughs> that is a weird team, Chris. Wow. <laughs> uh, we later learned, no, this is not the real Jamie Madrox, though. Just a dupe, which is a pretty common trick of his, let me tell you. Yes, it is. Now, following the Muir Island saga, Jamie would join the new look X-Factor. During one outing, he's forced to perform CPR and mouth-to-mouth on a Genosian mutate who had been infected with the legacy virus. He's also forced to kill the acolyte Melon Camp. Not that Melon Camp. Oh, no, not the cougar? Not, not Johnny Cougar, yeah. no. <laughs> now, Jamie appears to catch the legacy virus, and one of his dupes actually succumbs from it uh, in X-Factor number 92. Then, in X-Factor number 100, the mysterious character known as Haven attempts to cure him of the virus. It doesn't work, and another one of Jamie's dupes dies. But that time, we actually do think it's him. We really don't, but we're supposed to. I mean, just, you, gotta, you gotta play along a little bit, Chris. Yeah. This is comics, yeah. you know. Yeah. Now, the Madri burst in. Get it? The Madri? Madras? Oh, very good. Yeah, forget very it. Uh, now, the externals are able to best the multiple men, only leaving behind a man named Peter Corbeau. He first appeared in Incredible Hulk number 148, February 1972, cover date. He was created by Archie Goodwin and Herb Trimp. He's a former college roommate to Bruce Banner, and he's also an old friend to Professor X. He used his Star Corps technology to help the X-Men during a mission, during that mission that ended with the Phoenix bursting out of Jamaica Bay. So he was around for a pretty uh, seminal moment in X-Men history. Yeah. Uh, he's later seen chatting with President Jimmy Carter, also the Avengers, and the Fantastic Four about a great cosmic threat, which turns out to be the Phoenix Force. Hey. And now everybody recognizes everybody else in the room, and it turns out that Corbeau's a pretty solid dude. He goes, we don't have much time. Magnus, you told me to scan for, for a place called the Shi'ar Galaxy. This room, com- composed as it is of the remains of Apocalypse's celestial ship, which you destroyed years ago, revealed quite a bit of information about the star cluster you're trying to reach. And then Lila says, trying to reach? Wait a second here. This jewel you want us to steal... Is it out of space? Yes. Yes, it is. Oh. Also, he mentioned Apocalypse's celestial ship, so let's let's meet the ship. Okay. Uh, the first appearance, X-Factor number 24, January 1988, cover date, created by the Simonsons. This is an artificial intelligence on board a boxy rectangular celestial ship that Apocalypse once used as a base. After X-Factor were able to break Apocalypse's, Apocalypse's control over the ship, it uh, became their base of operations, and they referred to it just as ship. Now, prior to the Judgment War, ship was recalled by the Celestials and wound up dropping all of X-Factor onto some backwater planet in the midst of a civil war. Ship would eventually break free of the Celestial tractor beam and rescue the original five, then landed in Manhattan upended, appearing as though it was a skyscraper. Ship would be infected with the same techno-organic virus as Baby Nathan, and was crucial in sending the Todd into the future where he became an old man. While in the future, Nathan grew up and found that he had a metallic orb embedded inside of him. This was Ship, but now it's referred to as Professor. Professor would make the trip back in time with Cable, Nathan, and would be his AI assistant of sorts. During the Phalanx Covenant, the Phalanx attempted to assimilate Professor, aka, you know, Ship, which wound just keeping keep it straight, which uh, wound wound up finally giving the AI a body called Prosh. 
Prosh wound up, what would you say, Prosh? I'm saying Prosh. <laughs> Prosh works. <laughs> Prosh wound up assimilating the base to save his pals and leave Earth forever. So you, you wouldn't figure there'd be that much to ship. Nope, that's a lot. I love it. <laughs> Lila ain't uh, exactly keen on making this spaceward trek, but she's rather surprised to learn that, in fact, she'll be the one taking them there. Uh, she scoffs because she believes that she's human. But no, just like uh, we said during her bio section, she's actually a mutant. Uh, her powers were actually kept dormant out of the fear that she wouldn't be able to control them. Uh, but I guess uh, desperate times call for yeah, a you know what I mean? Yeah, we've got to call on all mutants, call on all mutants. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, then Richter and some infinites show up. Lila uses her powers and creates an interstellar doorway, and the externals are sucked through. Richter follows. Magneto does not. Neither does Corbo, because he, re- he realizes that he's already punched his ticket for portraying bet- Apocalypse. <laughs> so he might as well have just gone into space, right? Yeah. I mean, when, when, I mean, when at least there you have a chance, right? All this, all this back and forth, you, you're going to go there anyway. But. <laughs> uh, now, before leaving the underground lab, library, science place, hollow joint, whatever, Magneto sets it to self-destruct. Now, next book, Weapon X number one. This one is titled Unforgiven Trespasses by Larry Hama and Adam Kubert. Uh, here's a guy we love to talk about, Larry Hama, born June 7th, 1949, studied judo, archery, and swordsmanship during his youth. He attended the High School of Art and Design and planned to be a painter. His first comics work was, as a, pro- was a project for Castle of Frankenstein magazine when he was only 16 years old. He'd also submit work to the underground comics tabloid Gothic Blimp Works in 1969. Hama would serve in the United States Army from 1969 to 1971. He was a firearms and explosive ordnance expert in Vietnam, serving in the 18th Engineer Brigade. This would serve him well during his run as editor for Marvel Comics' The Nam, that's the title, from 1986 to 1993. Upon return, he found work at Wallywood's Manhattan Studio, where he'd assist with the syndicated strips Sally Forth and Cannon. Strips which originally ran in military news and overseas weekly part periodicals had illustrations published in Rolling Stone and Esquire magazines and also contributed to the underground magazine Drool Number no. One in 1972. He was able to score a spot at Neil Adams Continuity Associates Studio through a pal of his and uh, joined the inking gang Krusty Bunkers. Uh, Krusty Bunkers, we've touched on them a time or two. Mm-hmm. This is over 60 artists were at one point or another a member a member of the uh, Krusty. Gang. Uh, this term was coined by Neil Adams in relation to his children. He says, It was like calling someone a name that wasn't really dirty. It didn't really mean anything, it just sounded good. Now, Hammer's first work as a Krusty Bunker was the Slaves of the Mahars story in uh, DC Comics' Weird Worlds number two. That was November 1972 cover date. Hammer would briefly take over for Gil Kane on the Iron Fist feature in Marvel Premiere. That was issues 16 through 19, July through November 1974. He'd move on to do some freelance work for Atlas Seaboard, Seaboard Comics for a bit. And he was also part of the seminal independent book, Big Apple Comics with an X, number one, September 1975 cover date. He just can't put those independent uh, underground no, comics down, boy. He loves in it. In and out, yep. Uh, for the rest of the 1970s, Hama would be an editor for DC Comics, overseeing titles including Wonder Woman, Super Friends, Warlord, and even Welcome Back, Cotter. Also during the mid to late 1970s, Hama tried his hand at acting. He appeared in one episode of MASH. He also played a role in a spoof of Apocalypse Now on Saturday Night Live. He didn't continue to pursue acting. He'd say, I always basically saw myself as an artist, not as anything else. 
And you heard it here first, folks. Acting is not art. <laughs> so saith Larry Hama. Anyway, uh, just before we took over to the 80s, Hama, along with Michael Golden, created Bucky O'Hare in 1979, although the character wouldn't see print until Echo of Future Past, number one, May 1984, from Continuity Comics. Bucky O'Hare would go on to have an animated series of video game and action figures. That's right. Speaking of action figures, let's head into the 1980s and perhaps what Larry Hama is best known for. G.I. Joe, a real American hero. Now, he claims he only received this gig after Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter was turned down by every other writer in the Marvel bullpen. Uh, Hama used a story pitch he'd put together as a Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. spinoff that he'd call Fury Force. He used that as a backstory for his run with the Joe property. Hammer would also write the file cards that came on the packaging for each G.I. Joe action figure. The Tunnel Rat action figure was made by Hasbro in Larry Hammer's likeness and actually had the same military specialty to boot. Uh, yeah, Hammer's Marvel run of G.I. Joe, a real American hero, would run for an impressive 155 issues, February 1982 through October 1994, and uh, they're back at the legacy numbering uh, in IDW right now. They're, they're using oh, really? the same numbering for uh, as the Marvel run, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, Hammer just so happened to be in the midst of a long run on the Wolverine title when the Age of Apocalypse rolled in. Yep, and it would have to absorb him as well. But yeah, that G.I. Joe run is seminal stuff. Uh, even mm-hmm. even I, who's not really into that kind of thing, normally have to say it's pretty cool. Sure. Uh, then uh, across the table, we got Adam Kubert, born October 6, 1959, grew up in Dover, New Jersey. Now, Adam is the son of uh, Joe Kubert, you know, the famous uh, cartoon comic strip illustrator and whatever, everything else, <laughs> creator. The brother of Andy Kubert, who we will meet in just a little while. Adam's first comics work was as a letterer when he was a wee lad of 12. He'd attend the Rochester Institute of Technology and graduate with a degree in medical illustration. After this, he attended his father's school, the Kubert School, in his hometown of Dover, New Jersey. They kind of have to, if you're going to be a Kubert, yeah. Uh, (laughs) Adam's first credited artwork was a story called Gremlins that appeared in Sergeant Rock number 394, November 1984 cover date. He'd do various other work for DC and the Independents for the rest of the decade, including a collaboration with his brother on an Adam Strange prestige format miniseries. Adam scored a gig on Wolverine in his first issue, number 75, part of the Phalanx Covenant, was where we learned that Logan had bone claws under all that heavy metal. Since that wasn't all that long ago, it's no surprise that Adam is still around when the book finds itself taking part in this epic crossover event. Now, the story starts with Wolverine, or Weapon X, and Jean. They're on the back of a sentinel as they head toward Apocalypse's mid-Atlantic seawall defense towers in in order to destroy its grid. As luck would have it, the sentinel is equipped with a radar jammer that won't attract enemy fire. The sentinel shrams right into the grid, and the Merry Mutants hop off just in the nick of time not to blow up with it. I'm not sure if we mentioned this last week, but Wolverine only has one hand. It's the right hand at the moment. Uh, More on how that came to be next week. It's worth mentioning that before going boom, the Sentinel informs them that their termination amnesty is only temporary, <laughs> which speaks ever so highly of how much we ought to trust that high human council or human high council in the, uh, in uh, was it London? Yeah, well, they're giving out some kind of amnesty, so that's not too bad. Jean uh, locates their target, and Wolverine cuts a hole on the floor below to grant them access. In the down below, the pair find themselves attacked by a Balrog-class meta-cyborg, whatever that is. As long as it hits Logan with a tiger uppercut, I'm good with it. Now, that was Sagat, not Balrog. I have no idea what you're talking about. 
All right, so they make pretty short work of the beastie, and uh, suddenly an alpha-level mutant teleports in. It's Havoc, and boy, oh boy, is he upset. Fit to be tied, even. Gene can feel his presence and warns Logan of the same, but then, a fight. But first, some exposition. Havoc says to Gene, Well, if it isn't the escapee from the breeding pens, my brother Scott is trying to lay eyes, or should I say, eye on you. Where's your hairy boyfriend? I'd love to make a present of his other hand to my dear sibling. Adamantium claws at all. Meanwhile, Logan is busting through walls and beating up computer consoles. Then he rolls up on Havoc, who is literally beating a new hairstyle into Jean Grey. We st- she started this issue with long hair, now it's short. No in-story reason why, so we'll just blame it on Havoc. Or, well, either him or Bob Harris, I think. Right. Somebody <laughs> should have been mining the switches. But uh, Weapon X manages to send Havoc into the teleporter. Then that sentinel they rode in on reawakens. And so Wolvie and Gene attempt to leave the same way that they got here. During the transatlantic flight back toward Big Ben, the pair witness a whole load of sentinels heading toward the United States, courtesy of the Human High Council, naturally. We shift scenes to Apocalypse's pad, where the main man himself is chatting with Cyclops. Cyclops reports Mr. Sinister's betrayal. Oddly enough, this news seems to amuse Apocalypse. Hmm. Beast pops in in a really hard to distinguish hologram format. The, 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 the yeah. science wasn't there yet, art-wise. Uh, and he fills them in on Havoc's unpleasant return. Now, you see, when he came through the teleporter, he was inside a giant mitt of a sentinel. And now that mitt has uh, been fused to him. Well, that might ruin your day, I think. It might. It might. Uh, now, he continues informing them that a one-handed mutant was responsible. And it doesn't take him all that long to figure out it's, just who that is. It's either if one hand, one eye, can only be a couple of people, right? It's uh, true. Depending who you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> arriving in London, Weapon X and Gene passionately suck face. Heading into Big Ben, they are greeted with a rousing round of applause from the Human High Council. Brian Braddock makes a suggestion that they kill all the mutants in America before they rise up and kill all the humans. With that, things heat up a bit. Magma, real name, Amara Akia. First appearance was New Mutants number 8, October 1983, cover date, created by Chris Claremont, Sal McLeod, and Bob McLeod. Joins the Hellions early on in their rivalry with the New Mutants, and she'll eventually come around and join the good guys, though, but she wouldn't stay all that long. Most recently, she popped up during the X-Force New Warriors Child's Play crossover. Oddly enough, Magma would be the point-of-view character in the X-Men Legends video game for the PlayStation 2, Xbox, and Nintendo GameCube in 2004 Activision. That's weird, yeah. It's like yeah. she hadn't been seen in forever. And she was not even like a big character, but she's the no, POV. No. Uh, very weird. <laughs> now, Magma pops up, and Weapon X wastes no time ramming his claws right into her back. Thanks for coming, Amara. <laughs> That's really That's it. That's it. Uh, <laughs> Braddock climbs up to the top of Big Ben and watches his armada of blimps. Since the litterer clearly filled the bubbles in out of order here, we'll try to clear up what Brian wants to say. Yeah, he says, We must institute Project Scorch F. We have the will, and now, my friends, we have the means. Gene whispers, Lord of mercy. Apocalypse wants a brave new world for his filthy kind? So be it. But his precious domain would be nothing but a radioactive wasteland. Mm-hmm. Ooh. 
He 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 means business. He's not messing around. <laughs> uh, but that is the end of that issue. Yeah. Now we'll hop into Factor X number one. Bet you can't guess what that used to be called. Uh, the story is called Sinister Neglect by John Francis Moore and Steve Epting. Let's meet John Francis Moore. He was born in 1968, somewhere in these U.S. of A. We think uh, yeah. yeah, not a whole lot about this fellow online, so we'll uh, just talk about some of the things he'd worked on before the Age of Apocalypse event. We, we should probably ought to say that we're only we're only covering folks up to the Age of Apocalypse, and that includes our character bios as well. Right, right. It's yeah. everybody up till 1995. Right. Now, JFM wrote a few original graphic novels for DC Comics, including Batman Houdini, The Devil's Workshop in 1993, and also Superman, Under a Yellow Sun in 1994. Now, the latter was presented as a novel written by Clark Kent. Uh, he's also responsible for the hip, cool 90s take on fate. Ooh, but, uh, that's, that's too bad, yeah. yeah we, we, we'll try not to hold that against him. <laughs> uh, over at Marvel, uh, Moore worked in the 2099 department, writing for both Doom 2099 and X-Men 2099. He'd pop over to X-Factor with issue number 108, November 1994 cover date, and he stuck around long enough to take part in this here Age of Apocalypse event. Over on the drawing detail, Steve Epting received a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Graphic Design from the University of South Carolina. In 1989, Epting read about a contest being held by independent publisher First Comics looking for some new talent. The winning story was to be published by the company, only the contest didn't actually exist. Epting would be declared one of the winners anyway and do fill-in on first titles Dread Star and Whisper. By 1991, First was out of business, and after spending, sending some samples around the industry, Epting found work at Marvel Comics. His first work was filling in on a bi-weekly Avengers story, after which, uh, with issue number 341, November 1991 cover date, he'd become the full-time Avengers artist. After leaving the Avengers, he jumped over to the X-Books and he would take part in this, the massive Age of Apocalypse event. Now, our story opens in Manhattan, where we see a group of prisoners attempting to escape from Mr. Sinister's pens. They are halted by by Sinister's elite, which includes familiar folks like Cyclops and Havoc, but also North Star, real name John Paul Bobier. First appearance, X-Men number 120, April 1979, cover date, created by John Byrne and Chris Claremont. He's the twin brother to the young lady we'll be meeting shortly. He's a ski champion and member of the Canadian government-sponsored team Alpha Flight. We first met him when uh, they were trying to bring Wolverine back into their fold. Uh, North Star became the first openly gay character when he came out during issue uh, 106 of Alpha Flight. Uh, that was March 1992, cover date. Creator John Byrne claims that he was always intended to be homosexual. However, due to the still somewhat stringent Comic Code Authority, it was a no-go. Following Alpha Flight's cancellation, that was Alpha Flight 130, March 1994, cover date, North Star had his own self-titled four-issue limited series. That had nothing to do with his sexuality, because right. it might have been a little too hot a topic, even still. Even then. Uh, then there's also Aurora, real name Jean-Marie Bobier. That's that twin sister. First appearance, X-Men number 120, April 1979, cover date, created by John Byrne and Chris Claremont. Like we say, that's that twin sister to North Star. North Star. Similarly powered to North Star, but also has multiple personality disorder, which I don't know if we'd call that a power. Uh, Which she deals with pretty consistently And has gone on to more or less define her character Among those who would be Would be escapees uh, Sorry, among these would be escapees Are a few pretty familiar faces too They include Avalanche, real name Dominikos Patrakis 
First appearance, X-Men 141, January 1981, cover by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. He'd be part of Mystique's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants during the uh, ordeal with Senator Kelly that almost led to Days of Future Past. Uh, He would stick with Mystique during the team's shift in name to Freedom Force. There's a team of well, sort of good guys or posing good guys, uh, whatever they are, they're working for the U.S. government right. in exchange for a pardon for their prior crimes. It's sort of like a dollar store suicide squad minus the shock collars. This is also when they thought the uh, X-Men were dead, right? There was a... The, it's, it comes right up to it because uh, Freedom Force were there when the when the X-Men died. All right. um, and uh, Avalanche here was pals with Pyro. And together they would uh, join a few more teams and uh, also bungle an operation in the Middle East that saw their teammate, the Crimson Commando, get seriously injured. Uh, Avalanche would work with Project Wide Awake. Someone else there, Fantasia, real name Eileen Harsaw. First appearance was X-Force number 6, January 1992, covered A, created by Rob Liefeld and Fabian Nicieza. First appeared as a member of Toad's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and battled against X-Force very early in their run. And that's pretty much about it, so we'll give give you a twofer here. It's Pyro, real name St. John Allardyce, or Allardyce. I don't know. I think Allardyce is what I always say. Allardyce. I don't know if it's right. <laughs> Could be. Uh, first appearance was X-Men number 141, January 1981, cover date, created by Claremont and Byrne. He's an Australian mutant with the power to control flame. Not produce it, even though that's often forgotten, especially by X-Men writers and editors. And that will be telling me that people still think Juggernaut and Deadpool are mutants. Uh, people still draw Cyclops burning, you know, people with his beam, so there's that. <laughs> uh, he wears a flamethrower, backpack thing, in order to make it a flames. Pyro would become pals with Avalanche, and we could basically repeat everything we said about him right here, except for the fact that Pyro would eventually contract the, le- <laughs> contract the legacy virus. That's yes. the difference, so. Now, also, we have a newbie. Uh, this is Artemis, real name. Who knows, and who cares? Um, first <laughs> first, and last appearance, right here, baby. Uh, now, back to the story. The Summer Brothers argue about how to deal with the escapees, with Scott suggesting that they don't kill them. Havoc, however, has other plans. We shift over to Liberty Island, where Lady Liberty no longer stands. Now it's a statue of, who else? Apocalypse. They finally did it, you maniacs! (laughs) We've got Mr. Sinister standing inside. He's inside the eye of the statue, actually. And he considers his betrayal. You see, he's been uh, researching mutant evolution since the long ago, and had... uh, but really had to switch uh, shift gears when Apocalypse ascended to power. Uh, we'll, I guess we'll just let him explain it. Apocalypse entrusted me with the creation of the next generation of Homo Superior. A generation to be born not by accident, but by design. With the pens, I finally have a genetic stockpile of human and mutant alike, from which I can spin genetic straw into gold. He explains that during the Kentucky culling that he had met the Guthrie clan, and he was able to draft two of their number into his mutant elites, and they are... Cannonball, real name Sam Guthrie. First appearance was Marvel Graphic Novel number 4, November 1982, cover date, created by Claremont and Bob McCloud. Sam's mutant power of making himself not unlike a human cannonball manifested while he was trapped in a collapsed mine shaft. Hellfire Club member Donald Pierce hears about him, and hires him as a mercenary to fight the New Mutants. Sam ain't no villain, though. He instead joins the New Mutants and would-be co-leader alongside Danny Moonstar. During the Magneto days, Sam isn't keen on taking orders from the former villain, so he rebels, 
but then he gets over it. Kind of like we all do, don't we, eventually? Yeah. Uh, he and the rest of the new mutants are killed by the Beyonder during a Secret Wars 2 tie-in, and he kills them out of curiosity. I'm not sure that'll stand up in court. No, no, it depends on the court, Chris. You <laughs> I guess, I guess. Uh, he's in Cal- Southern California. They let a, they let a lot of things <laughs> fly. Uh, he is romantically linked with Lila Cheney and eventually Tabitha Boom Boom Smith. My third favorite sweater. <laughs> he, yep, you know. It's <laughs> he uh, sticks around during the shift from New Mutants to X-Force under Cable's leadership and becomes the second in command. Then there's a strange story about him, uh, a beat about him being an external, which doesn't really wrap up all that neatly, so we'll just move away from that. Yeah, we will. Uh, we have his sister, known as Amazon. Uh, her name is Elizabeth Guthrie. Her first appearance was New Mutants number 42, August 1986, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Jackson Geis. She's uh, Sam and Paige Guthrie's sister. Uh, not much more to say about that. Uh, her 616 version doesn't do a whole heck of a lot besides exist. All right. uh, now, their sister, Paige, declined, but we already met her back in Gen Next. Uh, we'll shift scenes here into Hank McCoy's lab. Uh, he's making some uh, protoplasmic soup. Yeah, I mean, he's literally dipping bodies into vats and watching them dissipate into nothingness. They don't call it the gene pool for nothing. And yes, that is actually what Hank calls it, the gene pool. <laughs> yes. Very good. Uh, he and Alex chat about how Sinister always likes Scott best, which, which is a pretty old bit already. Uh, they keep <laughs> needling in that one. Speaking of Scott, he's walking around the base when he's crashed into by the battling Bedlam Brothers. Real names, Jesse and Terrence Aronson. First appearance, right here, right now. We'd meet the prime versions of Jesse and perhaps yet another Aronson a few years down the line. Jesse's first appearance will eventually be in X-Force number 82, October 1998. Cover date and Christopher will first appear in X-Force number 87, February 1999 cover date. Jesse would wind up briefly joining X-Force, and Christopher was a no-good jerk. Mm-hmm. Upon seeing Sinister's favorite son, the Bedlam Boys stop their quarreling, and even make plans to visit the Heaven nightclub later that night. Luckily for them, Cyclops declines their invitation. Wouldn't imagine he'd be much fun anywhere, much less at a club. I mean, always with the uh, moping with him. Uh, after all, though, he is looking for Mr. Sinister. Now, Sinister is watching this go down from a monitor, because Sinister always has monitors everywhere. Everywhere. So it's, oh, yeah. it's advantageous, yes. Uh, he said that Scott didn't realize that their little walk that they went on during X-Men Alpha was actually a goodbye. Now, we jump to that Heaven nightclub that night. Uh, Havoc bumps into Angel, and they chat a bit about Gambit. All the while, Scarlet McKenzie performs a little ditty while splayed out atop a piano. During this, Heaven is invaded by... Henry Peter Gyrick. First appearance, Avengers number nine, uh, number 165, November 1977, cover date. He was created by Jim Shooter and George Perez. Uh, he was the liaison between the United States government and the Avengers. This is back when they didn't need to bring S.H.I.E.L.D. in every five minutes to babysit right. them. Uh, he's quite the thorn in their side. He revokes their priority status. He also limits their team roster. He also forces the Falcon to join in order to fill an affirmative action quota. <laughs> That's uh, now, Peter David believes that Jim Shooter loosely based Gyrick on himself and actually softened the character quite a bit when he was under his pen. Uh, he keeps getting tangled up on the wrong side of the heroes, though. Uh, most recently, he is the target of assassination from the Mutant Liberation Front. Back to the story. Gyrick is quickly contained by the Bedlam Brothers. Uh, after her set, Scarlet heads backstage and makes out with Havoc. 
Later that night, somebody appears to have set an auto-destruct on the Statue of Apocalypse. And it goes crack-a-boom! Oh, no. All right, then we move on to X-Men number one. Which, 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 what is this? Was there a Cable comic? This was that was Cable, cable yeah. Right? So this becomes X-Men number one. Uh, Breaking Away by Jeff Loeb and Steve Scroach. Or Scroachy? I, I say Scroci, but I don't know if it's right or not. So it's spelled Scroci, so that's probably the yeah. best one. Uh, Jeff Loeb, Joseph Jeff Loeb III, was born January 29th, 1958, in these United States, perhaps somewhere around Stamford, Connecticut, because that is where he grew up. He began collecting comics in 1970. Jeff met at Elliot S. Magan at Brandeis University in Walta, Massachusetts, before he had the exclamation point after his S, I think, probably. <laughs> probably. Uh, Jeff did not attend, but he did, however, graduate from Columbia University in New York with a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's Degree in Film. Alumnus of Columbia include several former presidents of the United States. However, nobody we could easily connect to Bob Haney's nephew, Chevy Chase, so we, Dang it. We, if we can't do that, we don't bother. Uh, no. Loeb's filmmaking debut was writing Teen Wolf with Matthew Wiseman, which was released August 23, 1985, starring Michael J. Fox. That same year, Loeb and Wiseman would co-write the Schwarzenegger flick Commando, which released October 4th. Other movies included Burglar, starring Whoopi Goldberg, and a sequel to Teen Wolf, Teen Wolf 2, starring Jason Bateman. When Loeb was working on a screenplay for the DC Comics character The Flash, the deal fell through. Fortunately, it didn't fall through before Jeff had the opportunity to meet the then DC Comics head honcho, Jeanette Kahn, and she asked him to write some comics. The first of which was the eight-issue Challenges of the Unknown miniseries that ran from March through October of 1991, and that saw him paired with a fellow he'd collaborate with a whole bunch in the future, Mr. Tim Sale. Yep. Now, Loeb would do a few one-off stories for DC Comics, including the Batman Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special. That's a prestige format from December 1993. Then, he'd do Cable for Marvel, and Cable became X-Man. Yeah, for a little while here. Uh, now, Steve Scrosi, we don't know a heck of a lot about him, other than that he's of Croatian descent. And uh, that's only if the internet isn't lying to us, so <laughs> we're not sure. Uh, his comic career started in 1993 when he drew Ecto Kid, a Clive Barker series for Marvel's Razorline imprint. Then he'd do a little cable, and now that's the book he's filling in. That's the book that's filling in for cable, so here he is. Now let's see, who is X-Men? Well, first, who is Cable? Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. First appearance as a wee baby, Uncanny X-Men number 201, January 1986, cover date. And as an old man from the future, New Mutants number 86, February 1990. Uh, that's a cameo. He His first full appearance is usually 87. Okay. Uh, now, he's created by Chris Claremont, Rick Leonardi, Louise Simonson, and Rob Liefeld. Now, we first met Cable before he was even Cable. Uh, after the apparent death of Jean Grey, Scott Summers would hop into bed with the first clone of her he could find. <laughs> now, this doppelganger was Madeline Pryor, and uh, the baby they'd make together would be Nathan. Scott, of course, abandons his family at the first sign that Jean Grey is actually alive. After the events of Inferno, Nathan would be taken in by his dad because his mom's a demon, and also dead. That's a good reason. Uh, Apocalypse, thinking Nathan Christopher would rise to eventually take him down, infects the tot with a techno-organic virus. Cyclops winds up sending the baby into the future with the Ascani clan in X-Factor number 68, uh, July 1991 cover date. 
Over a year earlier, an old man from the future showed up in the pages of New Mutants number 87. Ex-book editor Bob Harris requested the New Mutants title get shaken up and decided a new leader was needed. He asked Rob Liefeld to get to designing, and Rob says, I was given a directive to create a new leader for the New Mutants. There was no name, no description besides Man of Action, the opposite of Xavier. I created the look, the name, and much of the history of the character. After I named him Cable, Bob Harris suggested Quinn and Louise Simonson had Commander X. Uh, Simonson would later claim that Commander X was a placeholder, and uh, we hope that's true because, oof, that's a bad, that's not a great name right there, you know, Commander X. Uh, (laughs) Cable would lead the New Mutants, and they would be the proactive X team, eventually transitioning into the X-Force. At the end of New Mutants number 100, it was revealed that the leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, Strife, shared Cable's face. Hmm. Now, during the Executioner song, it was revealed that Strife was actually the adult Nathan Summers. They'd quickly reverse course on this, though, and made it so the good guy Cable was actually Scott's tot. Now, X-Man, Nate Gray of the uh, Age of Apocalypse, he ain't Cable. Well, not really, but sort of. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Nate Gray will be revealed to be the biological son of Scott Summers and Jean Gray, born of genetic tampering by Mr. Sinister. Nate's powers are much stronger than Cable's ever were because, you see, he didn't have that techno-organic hoodoo to deal with. Right. And uh, we will get better acquainted with him as we proceed, so don't worry. Uh, On to the story proper here. We open in a dream. Nate sees a man with a glowing red eye offering him a way out. Yeah, we know who this is. It's Cyclops, and he says, Come with me if you want to live. I bet he's always wanted to say that. I think so, yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, Nate freaks out and bursts through a wall to freedom. Uh, Cyclops doesn't even really pursue him all that hard. More like just standing there saying, wait, Mm -hmm. in a very hushed tone. Just like, hey, man, you know, he's not into it. Uh, (laughs) It suggested that Scott could very well be envious of the now free young man. The dream shifts. Now Nate stands before the ruins of a mansion, though it might have been a school. Of course it was. Oh. Now uh, inside the school, Nate sees what uh, looks like a psychic of the looks like the psychic residue of an argument between Bishop and Magneto. Bishop says, "You should have told them. You owe them the truth." And what is the truth? An amalgamation of what ifs and what coulds. I've done the best I know how. Then Nate interjects, only they can't hear him because, you know, different planes and realities and all that stuff. Uh, Nate is then tapped on the shoulder by an overly amused fella named Forge. Real name is unknown. First appearance on Canny X-Men number 184, August 1984 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Ramita Jr. He's a Native American of the Cheyenne tribe, though trained as a medicine man. Forge prefers to use modern technology and guns, for instance. Yeah, Forge turned his back on the Cheyenne to join the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. While there, he used the ghosts of his fallen comrades to fight the Viet Cong. That opened a portal to a lot of spooky stuff, so Forge has a B-52 bomber drop a payload on his position in order to shut it all down. You know, I guess that's one way to do it. Uh, It actually works, but he loses an arm and leg in the process, and one demon did sneak through, but we, he'll show up a little later on. Uh, after Forge is discharged from the army, he comes to work for Tony Stark in the Defense Department using his mutant techno- technological, sorry, using his mutant technological innovation abilities to create new weapons and machines, as well as a new arm and leg for himself. His what? Uh, his mutant 
technological innovation abilities. He's uh, like a super inventor. Mm, is that a thing? I, I well, I, I guess it is now, yeah. <laughs> now, Forge creates a weapon that inadvertently shorts out Storm's powers, and in rescuing her, they fall in love. Though they break up for a little while when Storm finds out that he made the thing that neutralized her. He, she wasn't aware of it at first. No. Now, uh, during this time, a demon named the Adversary, the one that Forge released during Vietnam, attacks the Earth and sends Forge and Storm to another dimension. This is during Life Death, I believe. Now, in this timeless place, they rekindle their relationship and Storm regains her powers. Forge and Storm return to help the X-Men defeat the Adversary, and uh, Forge must sacrifice nine X-Men to do so. Really, eight X-Men plus Madeline Pryor. Right. He does so, and feeling guilty, Forge allows a distraught magic, who blames him for killing her brother Colossus, with good reason, to stab him with a soul sword, and uh, it doesn't take. Uh, And don't worry, a goddess resurrects the sacrificed X-Men anyway, forcing them to endure a spiritual death of atonement. You know, they're they're not going to let them die, come on. Yeah, this is that whole Outback dealie. Right, with where they, they were, and the ladies had their day out in the mall and whatever. Yes. <laughs> uh, so Forge joins Mystique's Freedom Force, still thinking the X-Men are dead, but finds them later with the help of Banshee. When Bishop shows up on the X-Men, things get dicey for Forge and Storm, so he quits and goes back to civilian life. That includes caring for Mystique, who had developed schizophrenia. After Mystique kills Dr. Var- Valerie Cooper, we'll talk about that a little later, Forge replaces her as the government liaison to X-Factor. He eventually comes to lead X-Factor, has a fling with Mystique, and then leaves X-Factor when Havoc takes over. Basically, when a new guy comes in to, uh, you know, mess with his woman, he's not into... Uh, he also doesn't trust Havoc. Forge joins the mutant underground for a while, gets mixed up with Siren and Deadpool and them, and that's more or less where he's at when this comic came out. Yes, Forge goes, what are you doing? They can't hear you, because you're not really here. I've used our psi-length to find you. I've warned you about pushing yourself. It could be very dangerous. And with that, Forge and Nate just blip out. Only we know that what Nate was actually seeing was Magneto and Bishop, and what's more, Magneto could see him. Next, Nate wakes up. He's surrounded by his, recur- by his current running buddies of rebels, who include... One of my very favorites, Toad, a real name, Mortimer, Mortimer Toynbee. First appearance, X-Men number four, March 1964, created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Uh, what is there to say about Toad? Uh, he was a member of the Brotherhood and would eventually start his own Brotherhood of Evil uh, mutants. He also had the hots for the Scarlet Witch, but she didn't compensate because he's disgusting. And uh, hmm. he's hunchbacked and looks sort of like a Toad. Also, he hops. Yeah, so also we have Sauron. Oh, I know this guy. He's uh, the main antagonist from J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. He first appeared as a necromancer in The Hobbit, which was published way back. No, 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 wait up. No, this is a different one. Oh. This one, yeah, this one is Carl. Is Kyle Lykos. Uh, his first appearance was X-Men number 59, August 1969, cover date, created by Roy Thomas and Neil Adams. Now, this fellow was originally planned to be a bat-like character by uh, Roy and Neil. They went the pterodactyl route because the Comics Code Authority saw an energy vampire that also looked like a bat to be, you know, that bridge too far, I guess. I love it. I, love, I just love that. <laughs> this is the workaround, yeah. Right. So they make him a vampiric pterodactyl, and that's A-OK with the right. Comics Code Authority. Sure. Uh, now, his story is, while traveling with his father, a professional explorer's guide, in uh, Tierra del Fuego in South America, young Carl Lycos is bitten by a mutant pterodactyl and gains the power to suck the life force from things that have it. 
Yikes. Um, after Carl, Kyle's, no, 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 what's his face? After his father dies, he's taken in by the guy that hired him in the first place and falls in love with his daughter, Tanya, who they rescued during that initial expedition, incidentally. Uh, to impress the father of the woman he loves, Kyle becomes a physicist, genetic, physicist, geneticist, and hypnotherapist. A very well-rounded fellow, I gotta I say. <laughs> Multidisciplined. Uh, all the while, he's draining the energy of patients and folks he doesn't like. Later, he meets the X-Men and is recruited to help treat Havoc. Absorbing Havoc's powers turns him into his pterodactyl form, and he names himself Sauron, actually after the very character from Lord of the Rings that we mentioned earlier. Sauron would be a thorn in the X-Men's side from then on and would join up with various incarnations of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And he always looks ridiculous. It's, I think it's the idea that, the idea that a... Pterodactyl is the workaround, uh, arguably a scarier thing, you know, than a, to drain your than uh, energy yeah. than a bat. Yeah. <laughs> now, we also have Mastermind, real name Jason Wingard, first appearance X Men 4, March 1964, created by Stan and Jack. Now, he was part of Magneto's original Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Just like the Toad, he had the hots for the Scarlet Witch. Uh, the trouble with him, uh, trouble much. that yes, that's a trouble with being the only lady on a theme, right? It's Jean gets hit on, yep. Scarlet Witch gets hit on. It's just a mess. <laughs> uh, he also has a thing for redheads that we're gonna we're gonna come to learn shortly. Uh, after the Brotherhood breaks up, which is to say, after their run-in with the cosmic entity, the Stranger, Mastermind joins up with Factor Three. And if you remember, they had the goal of taking over the world, and it didn't work. Mm. Now Magneto would eventually regroup and reform the Brotherhood. Mastermind, like the rest of his pals, are reverted to babyhood by Alpha the Ultimate Mutant, and we discussed that last week. Aww. Uh, after getting grown up again, Mastermind would join the Hellfire Club. It's here he was given the name Jason Wingard by Claremont and Byrne. They based his name on actor Peter Wingard, who played the leader of a group called the Hellfire Club on an episode of The Avengers. That's that other British Avengers television show. Peter Wingard is best known for playing the character Jason King in the television series Department S, which ran from 1969 to 1970, and the follow-up simply titled Jason King from 1971 to 1972. So Jason King plus Peter Wingard equals Jason Wingard. Also, Byrne drew the character to look just like the actor. I find it's best not to look too deeply into what Claremont ideas might be based on, because... Uh... At the end of the day, there aren't as many original ideas there as you might hope. Yeah, you know, I mean, you could transpose that to a lot of comic creators when you really <laughs> start digging in there, but that's, you know, whatever. Uh, he poses as a debonair fella called Nikos. A mastermind can control the people, the way people see him. That's his thing, yeah. He starts a romance with Jean Grey, who is actually the Phoenix, but we'll get there eventually. Uh, told you he has, he has a thing for redheads, though. Now, he projects the illusion of her living the perfect Victorian-era life. In this illusion, they're also married, and she is the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club. Cyclops is eventually able to reach Jean on the astral plane, but Wingard is also there, and he soundly beats Scott. He goes, you know, what's Scott know about the astral plane? Really, now? <laughs> uh, Phoenix, however, can now see through Mastermind's plan and pumps, uh, pumps his own powers up to that of a god, and this experience leaves him a babbling looney tune. Uh, he gets better and screws with the X-Men some more. He eventually contracts the Legacy Virus and dies only after begging for Jean Grey's forgiveness, which, being the, the good gal she is, she gives him. Of course, a deathbed forgiving. It's just her mm -hmm. way. Uh, we also see Brute, whose real name is unknown. His first appearance is he's in an Age of Apocalypse original. 
So hmm. that's why we have nothing to say about him. We're all meeting no. him for the first time here together. Uh, Nate goes all Dorothy back from Oz trying to explain the crazy dream he just had. It's clear, you know, you were there, and you, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's clear from the destroyed area that they're cur- currently huddled in that Nate's uh, telekinesis went a bit wacky while he slept. So it's no surprise to anybody who's having one of those dreams. One of those? Yeah, you know, uh, those dreams where you get to watch Bishop and Magneto yell at one another. I hate right. those. You never hear have those? Yeah. <laughs> Very embarrassing. <Now> that, <laughs> that night, uh, Nate's gang puts on a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, their, their cover is as a traveling theater troupe. Sure. Now, A Midsummer Night's Dream is a comedy by William Shakespeare that was entered into the register of the Stationers Company on October 8th. 1600 and uh don't think we have any idea whether or not this play was chosen for any kind of thematic reason i don't I, think I, so i mean it is a genuinely funny kind of silly romp but hmm. no it's that's the one uh what fools these mortals be you know so i don't know okay i wonder now uh, their performance is enjoyed by survivors of a midwest culling however some of the prelates present grow suspicious and I gotta say, it's probably it's probably because Sauron looks like a pterodactyl, right? I mean, come on! Now we really wish he was a bat. You know, then we could right. then you can pass him off. Uh, Nate does some mental hocus pocus to make everyone look the other way. Although it gets the job done, Forge is not pleased. Forge goes, Nate, that wasn't very smart. He says, "What? What I do?" Don't deny it. You used your gift to change those men's minds. Ah, so what if I gave them a little telepathic whack? I got us out of hot water. Besides, it's not much of a gift if I can't use it to help my friends. We pop back over to check in on Apocalypse. Cyclops informs the big boss that Sinister's turned traitor, and we're getting this scene a lot. Yeah, everybody, likes um, to, everybody wants to tell him, you know, oh, oh you're me first, you know. <laughs> it's Cyclops every time. <laughs> you know, geez, it is, no. it is Cyclops, yeah. <laughs> so Apocalypse turns to his pet telepath, who is the disembodied Shadow King. Real name, Amal Farouk, first appearance, X-Men 117, January 1979, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. I mean, do we really got to... Uh, I hate the Shadow King. Now, the Shadow King is an entity of the astral plane who enslaves the bodies of telepaths and psychics, and he does it a lot. Uh, He was behind the Muir Island saga, and since we've mentioned that a bunch over the past couple weeks, let's give you a refresher on exactly what it was. The Muir Island saga is a five, and it also stops us from having to talk about the Shadow King directly. (laughs) Um, Now, the Muir Island saga is a five-part Marvel Comics crossover event involving the X-Men and X-Factor, published in 1991. It was written by Chris Claremont and Fabian Niciasa. Now, Muir Island is an island off the uh, northwest coast of Scotland, which contains Maura McTaggart's mutant research lab. Muir Island, uh, during this, Muir Island is taken over by the Shadow King. The X-Men go to investigate what's happening, uh, and they're captured and possessed by the very same Shadow King. Back in New York, Professor X fights with a Shadow King-possessed Colossus. Uh, the Professor cures the uh, possession. However, also, he, he also eliminates that, that uh, amnesiac Peter Nicholas right. alter ego from yeah. the uh, Siege Perilous. Uh, X-Factor sent to Muir Island by Professor X to solve this Shadow King conundrum. On the island, Wolverine, Rogue, and Banshee are all freed of their mind control by Forge. Uh, Banshee explains that the Shadow King is using Polaris, it's a mutant uh, with uh, magnetic powers, as a conduit to steal the powers of other mutants. 
Professor X leads uh, the X-Factor on an assault on Muir Island, which results in a face-off with the Shadow King, as you might imagine. That's pretty much why he did it, one would assume, yeah. Uh, back to the story, Forge is able to use a mind-controlled Psylocke to sever Polaris's con- connection to the astral plane, which in turn kills Shadow King for a hot minute anyway. And everyone lives happily ever after. Uh, no, wait, this is still the X-Men, Chris. This That's is, true. No That's way, true. there can't be a constant uh, nightmare <laughs> for all of them. So, the Shadow King under glass informs Apocalypse that Sinister might be the least of their concerns, because there's a new immensely powerful teleplath, pel- telepath on the block, and we'll give you three guesses as to who he's talking about. The mutant with powers rivaling Apocalypse is somewhere in the Midwest. Apocalypse thinks on it and decides to send out a hunter who we know as Domino. Real name, Nina Thurman. First actual appearance was X-Force number 8, March 1992, created by Fabian Nicias and Rob Liefeld. And we'll explain why that was an actual appearance uh, in a minute. Helped out the mer- helped found the mercenary group Six Pack, which is where she first met Cable. Seemingly joined the New Mutants X-Force shortly after Cable's arrival. However, that was revealed to be copycat impersonating her. And we'll hear from Copycat in a little while. Uh, Domino was actually being held captive by captive by Tolliver. Tolliver, Tyler, Tyler Dayspring, is Cable's son from the future. Uh, maybe. It uh, might be Strife's kid. Who knows? Either way, Tyler is ticked at Cable. Uh, Domino would accidentally be accidentally freed from Tolliver by Deadpool and would eventually join X-Force. Apocalypse goes, see if you can collect this telepath. Perhaps you can convince the mutant to work for me. And if he or she refuses, kill it, my dear Domino. Love to, boss. We scoot over to Kansas, where a town is being invaded by the Infinites. Amid the mass of panicking Kansans is Siren. Real name, Teresa Mauve? Maeve? Maeve? I I would say Maeve, Maeve. but I don't know. Yeah, Teresa Maeve, Raw Cassidy. Uh, First appearance, Spider-Woman, number 37, April 1981, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Steve Leoloa. She is uh, the daughter of Banshee, a fellow who will bio a little bit later. Uh, While her dad is working for Interpol, Teresa's mom dies, and she's taken in by her dad's cousin, Black Tom Cassidy. Uh, Banshee returns and blames Tom for not taking better care of his wife, and then throws him down a a chasm and breaks his leg for a good measure. There you go. Uh, This, uh, as you might imagine, annoys Black Tom, and he vows never to tell Banshee about his daughter. Tom trains her to become Siren, and they team up with Juggernaut in San Francisco to do crimes. And we'll meet Juggernaut in a little bit. Uh, When Siren is injured during her first job, Black Tom regretfully disavows her and writes a letter telling the truth about her real daddy. Siren and Banshee are reunited at the X-Mansion. She lives on Muir Island for a while, where uh, she thinks she's got a relationship with Jamie Madrox, but it turns out that it wasn't really him with, uh, what was that, Exterminators of the Fallen Angels, one of those groups. It wasn't the real Muir, multiple men. Of course. Uh, <laughs> that, that old trick, you know? Yeah. Now, uh, later, Siren joins X-Force and has a very serious relationship with Deadpool, which sounds funny when you say it out loud. <laughs> uh, Siren's power set includes the sonic scream you would expect, uh, but then the ability to uh, <laughs> to do everything else under the sun on top of that. It's like, why is her name Siren? Like, she's just the sonic <laughs> scream, plus, like, tele- telepathy, telekinesis, you know, flying. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'd give her whatever name she freaked. Teresa would be fine. Anyway. Uh, she's grabbed by an infinite and tossed into a train car. Off to the side in the bushes, Nate and Forge look on, and then they attack, though Nate is ordered not to directly engage their enemy. 
but he does anyway, yelling, eat it, as he blasts the <laughs> hell out of a group of infinites. Now, as the dust settles, so does Teresa, right into Nate's arms. Forge tells Nate to drop the girl, but he ain't having it. I can't do that, Forge. She's coming with us, whether you like it or not. Well, when you put it that way. Um, And so the troop, plus one, load into their cart and roll down the road until they run into a stranger with a red diamond on his forehead who introduces himself as Essex. Mm. I wonder who that could be. (laughs) And that is X-Man number one. Next up. Excalibre, number one. Which, of course, is uh, is replacing Excalibur. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is The Infernal Gallop by Warren Ellis and Ken Lashley. Start with Warren Ellis. Warren Gerard Ellis was born February 16, 1968, in Essex, England. He claims that his earliest coherent memory was of the moon landing just a year later, which is pretty convenient. Sure. I think that's my first coherent memory, even though it was 10 years before I was born. Uh, (laughs) Now, he attended the Southeast Essex Sixth Form College, which is now known as the South Essex College of Further and Higher Education. Uh, While there, he contributed comic work to the college magazine Spike. Prior to becoming a professional comics writer, Ellis held jobs running a bookstore, running a pub, working at a record shop, and also some manual labor. He claims he fell into comics journalism largely by accident, and when the folks he was working with decided to start publishing original work, he decided why not give it a try. This would turn out to be Lazarus Churchyard, which appeared in Blast No. 1 from 1991 from Tundra Press. In 1994, Ellis began working for Marvel Comics, taking over scripting duties on Hellstorm, Prince of Lies, with its 12th issue, March 1994 cover date. He'd stick around until the book's cancellation the following year with its 21st issue. He'd hop over to the 2099 arena and write some Doom. He'd also do Excalibur, which is why we're talking about him right now. Uh, This was still very early in Warren's career, so we'll have more to say on the back end. Oh, yeah, it did. It takes off pretty much immediately after this uh, time. Uh, Over on the drawing side, we got Ken Lashley. Very little can be found online about Ken Lashley's early years. Uh, We assume he was born somewhere in Western Hemisphere, somewhere sometime during the latter half of the 20th century. Hmm. Started working for Marvel with Excalibur number 70. That was October 1993 cover date and stuck around long enough to take part in the Age of Apocalypse. Uh, He has a website, which is ledkillaboom.com. We'll link to that at the blog. And he does plenty of work even today, cover work at least and stuff. So He's he's going to be part of the uh, Milestone reboot coming up. Whenever that happens, that's that's (laughs) a whole other thing. He's Um, on the list. That's good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, So we open the story near the Savage Land with a girl riding a strange little ferry into a dark cave. This young lady is Switchback. Real name is unknown. Her first appearance right now. Now inside, she discovers a giant of a man in chains. And we already know him as, well, he's introduced as Kane, but we know him as Kane Marco, the juggernaut. Real name, Kane Marco. First appearance, X-Men 12, July 1965, created by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Alex Toth. Uh, Kane Marco is the son of Professor Professor Charles Xavier's one-time stepfather, Kurt Marco, who contributed to the death of Charles's mother, incidentally, but that's a whole other story. Uh, Kurt clearly shows preference towards Charles and belittles Kane, so Kane bullies Charles when Dad ain't looking. Uh, Later, Kane and his stepbrother serve in Korea during the war. 
Inside this spooky cave, Kane discovers the ruby of Sidorak, and upon touching it becomes the Juggernaut, which is a nice tie-in with Doctor Strange here. Uh, he actually meets and fights the guy in Doctor Strange number 182, September 1969 cover, and is banished to another dimension. The Juggernaut is essentially that immovable object meeting with unstoppable forces, uh, not unlike the Blob, but only less blobish. Less blobish, yeah. He's, he's still huge, though, but he looks more like yeah. a man, not like a box he, he, or probably doesn't, he probably doesn't jiggle as much. Probably not, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, Marco comes back from that dimension, but ages rapidly and seeks the help of Beast, who sends him back to his old dimension. <laughs> then, his true, form, true, true age is restored, and he stays there until he is drawn to this dimension by a Hulkbuster machine. <laughs> it's like, well, poor Tell guy, really. Yeah. We're trying to say. Yeah, yeah. he really does get around. <laughs> uh, later, he becomes a villain due Spider-Woman and Spider-Man. He eventually battles Thor. There's that, there's that one, uh, nobody stops the juggernaut uh, story with Spider-Man where he winds up be- being turned into like part of a road somewhere. Oh yeah, <laughs> he stomps into some wet cement and just sinks. Um, now, right about now, he's at his zenith of his popularity, and the Juggernaut will be central to an event of his own next year, 1996. Yeah, but for now, he's just uh, doing his thing. Marco will act as her guide into the Promised Land, known as Avalon. Over the next little while, they make the trudgy trek until finally they arrive. Avalon is a beautiful paradise of a place hidden deep within the Savage Land. Its name might be based on a certain hot potato space station in recent X-Men lore. I don't know. Uh, We hop over to New York City, which is quite the interesting juxtaposition. Everything's on fire, sentinels are flying about, it's pretty ugly. Inside the Heaven nightclub, Angel has a meeting with Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler asks if his travel arrangements have been made, which irritates the Angel as he's gone legit now and doesn't want to be a front man for terrorists. It doesn't take much for Kurt to make Warren see things his way anyway. After socking Warren in the mush, uh, Kurt's instructed to head to a Stark Holdings warehouse and ask for Proud Star, who we'll meet in just a bit. Back at Magneto's place, he's having a video chat with... Mystique. Hey. Real name? Yes, real name Raven Darkholm. First appearance, Ms. Marvel, number 16, April 1979, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Jim Mooney. Blue-skinned Mystique's real age is unknown. However, her earliest meeting with Destiny, that's her lover we met during the Legion quest there, mm-hmm. happened at the dawn of the 20th century, so she's a little old. She's old. Um, she's also a shapeshifter. She's also Nightcrawler's mother. She did uh, once did government wet work with Sabretooth, uh, who she banged and had a kid with, and uh, was Rogue's adoptive mother as well. Uh, it's just like the linchpin to everything, basically. To everything. Like she's, yes. she's the mother to the whole thing, really. Six degrees of Mystique, yes. Yeah. Uh, now, Mystique organized one incarnation of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and that's a one, that's the one that included a young Rogue at the time. Uh, as you know, Rogue defects to the X-Men eventually. Later, Mystique is very nearly killed by Dr. Valerie Cooper, a special assistant to the head of the National Security Council and liaison to the mutants after impersonating her. Mystique convalesces at Professor X's mansion, but eventually escapes with Forge. Mystique resurfaces several months later in a failed attempt to kill Legion for his murdering of Destiny, which we discussed last week. Uh, she eventually becomes an X-Men frenemy, sort of like Magneto. She's sometimes a member, sometimes an associate, yeah. sometimes a villain. It's It depends on the day of the or week. Or back then, I think it would be kind of like a villain, but they have like a begrudging respect, right? Like, yeah. Like you get these kind of like Moriarty uh, Holmes situations like that. They think, can this person... Can this person carry the burden of a four-issue limited series? <laughs> and, and if so, and if okay. So, then she could be, she could be a good person, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, he wants her to go to Avalon, but uh, Mystique doesn't want to. Magneto ain't taking I don't want to as an answer, though. 
Yeah, he says, I understand the problems involved, Mystique. However, this is not a request. You will stand ready to receive your son, Kurt, and then extract Destiny from Avalon and bring her here. Mystique says, No! Kurt must have explained why I won't do this, Eric. I will not set foot on Avalon. End of argument. I said I understand. But allow me to explain why you'll comply. If you help, I will not have your location divulged to Apocalypse, who, of course, would be more than happy to tear off all your arms and legs. If you help, I will not tear off all your arms and legs. Well, fair enough then. I guess uh, mm. it's a deal, buddy. Uh, so Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler arrives at Stark Holdings and finds a bunch of folks dancing around a bonfire. One of those folks is John Proudstar, a.k.a. Thunderbird. First appearance was Giant Size X-Men number 1, May 1975, created by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. John Proudstar was born into an Apache tribe on a reservation camp in Camp Verde, Arizona. As a teenager, he developed his mutant powers of superhuman speed, strength, and heightened senses. Proudstar was drafted into the, into the United States Marine Corps during the Vietnam War and earned the rank of corporal. Returning home after the war, Proudstar was depressed and listless. Professor X recruits John to join his new incarnation of the X-Men, and John accepts taking the name of Thunderbird. He ends up butting heads with Cyclops a lot. I think they're both leader types looking to uh, take over. Uh, looking to catch Count Nefaria before he escapes, Thunderbird jump, jumps aboard his fleeing jet against Professor X's orders. Thunderbird takes down the plane with his bare hands, killing himself and Count Nefaria in the process, but the Count doesn't stay dead forever. No. Uh, John informs Nightcrawler that they're part of a religion called the Ghost Dance, and they are the first link of the Infernal Gallop. The dance they perform now was originally performed to wipe out the White Man. However, it's been refigured to remove Apocalypse from power. Nightcrawler breaks one's of, one of Proudstar's fingers, because this, this Nightcrawler's kind of a joke. Really, he is, yeah. uh, he's just the worst. Uh, as they argue, we can see that they're being eavesdropped on by Danielle Moonstar. First appearance, Marvel graphic novel number four, November 1982 cover, created by Chris Claremont and Bob McLeod. Native American teenager Danny, a member of the Cheyenne tribe, starts manifesting psionic powers at puberty, like most mutants do. Yep. Uh, initially, the Hellfire Club makes a play for her, but Danny's grandfather made arrangements with Professor X, who whisks her away to Westchester. She joins the just-minted New Mutants and gets along with everyone just swell. Though she does have a special friendship with Wolfsbane. It's like a sisterly uh, yeah. relationship. Uh, Danny seems to be deployed primarily when there is an ethereal or demonic entity to battle. Uh, later on, Danny will join S.H.I.E.L.D. and goes against her former teammates and colleagues when it, it was, she infiltrates the Mutant Liberation Front, but they don't they don't quite realize that right away. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Interesting lady. Yeah. Uh, Danny takes what she's overheard and rushes back to Apocalypse with it, and Apocalypse then orders some of his agents to follow Nightcrawler on his trip to Avalon. Those agents include Dead Man Wade, a.k.a. Deadpool, real name Wade Winston Wilson. First appearance was New Mutants number 98, February 1991, cover date, created by Fabian Nicieza and, well, Rob Liefeld, huh? He, he created Deadpool? Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. Never um, mentions that. <laughs> Wade, Wade joined the Weapon X program after being kicked out of the U.S. Army Special Forces, and he was given an artificial healing factor based on Wolverines. He shoots guns and slashes swords and kills for hire. He's a merc. That's it? What? That that's all. He's just just he's a merc. 
what more what more do you want me to say about it? He's a merc with uh halitosis problem. Oh, maybe that mask doesn't breathe very well. Could be. <laughs> uh, another one we have here is Emma Steed. And I, I wonder if this has an Avengers connotation. Uh, it definitely does. There's no question. <laughs> Her first appearance. Well, bag and board this one because we're looking at it now. Uh, Kurt loads into a submarine, which is uh, called Excalibur, uh, on his trip south. Meanwhile, we hop over to Avalon and Switchback and Marco run into Destiny who, upon touching hands with Switchback, becomes overloaded by visions of Apocalypse. And I think this is the final part here. Is it really? Wow, all right. I think, yeah. (laughs) Amazing X-Men number one. This was adjectiveless X-Men in the real world. Mm -hmm. Stories called The Crossing Guards by Fabian Niciesa and Andy Kubert. Fabian Niciesa? Well, we already met him. We already met him, but Andy Kubert was born... February 27th, 1962, and grew up with the rest of the Cuberts over in Dover, New Jersey. He is the son of Joe Cubert, brother of Adam Cubert, who we already met. And guess what? He graduated from the Cubert School. <laughs> I mean, you're going to have to do it. Uh, his first gig was as a letterer for DC Comics in 1980, and his first credited artwork was for, just like his brother, a Sergeant Rock story, but it was Old, Sol- Old Soldiers Never Die, Sergeant Rock number 393, October 1984 cover date. Adam happened to be in the right place at the right time and found himself as the fill-in penciler on Uncanny X-Men following the image Exodus. This would score him a regular gig on X-Men Volume 2. He drew X-Men Volume 2, number 30, March 1994 cover date, which featured the wedding of Cyclops and Jean Grey. And he'd still be on the books when the Age of Apocalypse went down, so here he is! Hey! Now, uh, our issue opens with a prologue. Welcome to America. Welcome to a world and a time gone mad. Years ago, a mutant named Apocalypse conquered this land. And as Homo sapiens superior rose from the rubble, humans were left crushed by their climb to power. A few, the lucky ones, managed to flee to Europe and Asia. The rest remained trapped by a destiny they couldn't quite understand. Fodder for the work camps and breeding pens of the New World Order. We're in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, where a cloaked stranger starts talking to the Graves family, who are hoping to escape to Europe. She learns that they expect their salvation to come from the sky, and she's quick to share that information with her pals, the Madri. Oh, by the way, this cloaked woman is, this cloaked person is Copycat. Real name, Vanessa Geraldine Carlyle. First appearance, posing as Domino. New Mutants, number 98, February 1991 cover date, created by Fabian Niciesa and Rob Liefeld. This is a former prostitute from Boston and Deadpool's ex-girlfriend. Vanessa uses her shape-shifting powers to be a mercenary after Deadpool breaks it off. Uh, this is after he, he gets diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. Uh, she initially takes the job as to uh, mimic Domino and blow up X-Force headquarters, Nora falls in love with Cable and decides not to go through with the gig. Uh, she actually makes her first appearance as Domino before Domino. Which is hilarious, but also Isn't awesome it? in its own way, too. Right? <laughs> it is, right? Uh, now, uh, and, and I hope it wasn't by accident, but I can't. <laughs> you can't guarantee it, but yeah, I hope no, it was we planned. We look, we'll just say it was planned. You know? Yes. Now, uh, Deadpool is enlisted next, and he snitches on Copycat and blows up X-Force Base himself. 
Uh, don't worry, though. Everybody gets away okay. Right. They're uh, fine. <laughs> everybody survived. Uh, copycat is forced to go into hiding after this, and she winds up being hunted by Deadpool and his associates. Uh, you know, some guys just can't let a girl go. Yeah, guys, just don't do that. You know, just, just break it off. It's done. Move on. Delete Clean the contact. Up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back to the story and back to the mansion where Bishop roams the grounds alone. Caption reads, He looks over this wasteland he once called home and struggles to remember what it used to look like, should have looked like, if his reality had not been changed. For twenty years he has wandered this world, unsure of his place in it. As much as a time traveler from the future belonged anywhere, he knew he did not belong in this war-ravaged world. Why, then, does he now feel as if he's come full circle? Bishop continues his stroll and comes across the X-Men during a training session. They're fighting a hollow construct of a sentinel. And uh, let's meet some more X-Men. Sure. Got Banshee, who we've talked about a little bit already. Real name, Sean Cassidy. First appearance was X-Men number 28, January 1967, cover date. Created by Roy Thomas and Werner Roth. Initially, Sean is forced to be a member of the villain group Factor 3 when he's outfitted with an explosive headband. Professor X disables the headband telepathically somehow, or I guess telekinetically, sure. Um, One of those. And Sean becomes sympathetic to the X-Men, even joining their all-new, all-different retooling in 1975. His vocal cords are damaged, and he has to leave the X-Men for a time, living with Moira McTaggart on Muir Island, but he gets better. His powers include a sonic scream and the ability to induce vertigo in others. We also have Exodus, real name Bennett du Paris. First appearance, X-Factor number 92, July 1993, cover date. Born in the 12th century, Paris linked up with the Black Knight of his time, Yobar Garrington, to find the mystical Tower of Power, baby. <laughs> they, they have a falling out, so Bennett sets off to find it himself. After arduous searching through sandstorms, Paris collapses, then a mysterious voice speaks to him and bestows him powers. Sort of a mix of everything. Teleportation, telekinesis, a healing factor. He's, he's a pretty tough cookie. Yeah. He's, a, he's one of those that has what it takes, I suppose. <laughs> Whatever the story calls for, he's got it. Now, uh, because of comics, the 20th century Black Knight, Dane Whitman, and, the, and Cersei the Eternal show up in the 12th century and tangle with Paris. Uh, they uh, recognize him as Exodus, the supervillain from the 20th century. Apocalypse is there, too. And he commands Paris to kill Dane and Cersei, but Paris refuses. So, Apocalypse strips him of his powers and seals him away in the Swiss Alps. Then, eight centuries later, Paris is found and freed by Magneto, becoming his right-hand man. Now, his name officially becomes Exodus, the one that uh, was recognized earlier. When Professor X mind-wipes Magneto, Exodus takes control of the Acolytes for a time, though he believes the mindless Magneto still speaks to him telepathically. Uh, Don't worry, Magneto gets over it eventually, but currently, Exodus is the boss. Mm Mm-hmm. As the X-Men emerge victorious, let's take a look at the creator of the hard light sentinel construct. It's Dazzler. Real name, Allison Blair. First appearance was X-Men number 130, February 1980, cover date. Created by Tom DeFalco, John Romita Jr., and Roger Stern. Born in Gardendale, New York, Allison manifests her mutant ability to generate light while performing at a junior high school dance. Everyone assumes it's just a special effects light rig when it happens. Must have been one heck of a successful bake sale to raise the money for this. I mean, you know, this has got to be in some really rich neighborhood, you know, garden. Right. 
so Allison becomes a performer using the stage name Dazzler and her mutant ability to dazzle crowds. Oh! There you go. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) When the X-Men and the Hellfire Club tangle during one of her shows, Dazzler fights back and turns, turns one of the Hellfire Club catatonic. She's offered membership in the X-Men and even the Avengers, but turns them both down. Dazzler does, however, help the X-Men out many times, sort of a special recurring guest star for a time. Uh, Galactus even endows her with the power cosmic temporarily. Talk about a charmed life, right? (laughs) Now, after moving to Los Angeles to pursue her career, she reveals herself to be a mutant and endures a lot of backlash. Uh, when she's saved from a plane crash by Cannonball and uh, Joshua after being freed from possession by the evil mutant Malice, Dazzler finally decides to join the X-Men proper. Uh, Dazzler has had relationships with Warren Worthington III and Longshot from the Mojoverse, uh, and kind of has a catty beef with Rogue. Now, interesting character, because Dazzler was originally a project commissioned by Casablanca Records in the mid to late 1970s to be a cross-promotion in the mold of Kiss who themselves had two successful comic book tie-ins with Marvel by the end of 1977. Marvel Comics would create a singing superhero, while Casablanca would produce a singer in the same mold. The two companies would then work with Filmworks and produce a tie-in motion picture. Jim Shooter wrote a treatment for the project. I think they started as a cartoon and eventually decided that it was uh, big enough to be a motion be a picture. Film, yeah. Yeah. Ramita Jr. originally intended for the character to resemble Grace Jones, but representatives from Filmworks wanted to promote model and actress Bo Derek and insisted on design changes to resemble her. She had recently, Bo Derek, that is, had two stints in Playboy magazine, plus a major motion picture success with the movie Ten, which came out in 1979, directed by Blake Edwards. Though Marvel did debut Dazzler in X-Men number 130, Casablanca Records was bought out and the rest of the project never materialized. But... That was not the end of the character. I mean, obviously not, since she shows up in the Age of Apocalypse. she's right here. (laughs) Uh, Yes, but Marvel did have big plans for her early on. According to Jim Shooter himself on his blog, he says, Noting the strengthening of the still-fledgling direct market, I propose to Galton that we publish a direct market exclusive issue. Uh, Galton was the parent company, correct? Yes. Around that time, X-Men and other top performers were selling around 30,000 copies on the, in the direct market, in addition to their newsstand sales. The sales department resisted, fearing angering the ID wholesalers, that's the newsstand distributors. The compromise is that we would use a lesser-known character rather than a top seller, which the newsstand people might pay more attention to and might be upset by. I picked Dazzler. I figured it would provide a good test. Dazzler number one was the first all-direct comic book, at least from a major publisher. It sold 428,000 copies. Wow. I mean... That's a lot of books. It is unbelievable, you know what I mean? Like, even even for that time when comics regularly sold in the six figures, sure, that would be a real high one, I'll tell you what. Uh, Absolutely. So, yeah, that definitely uh, opened their eyes to more direct market. The power of the direct market, yeah. Uh, But anyway, uh, back in the age of apocalypse, Dazzler lights up a cigarette and tells the gang they were one and eight-tenths of a second slower during their training, which leads to an argument which Magneto arrives to talk over and... We'll spare you at this time. Yeah. Uh, Bishop wanders over, holding baby Charles. I'm not sure I'd trust nope. my baby with a crazy ranting dude, but I guess we won't judge. I, you know, parents get real tired, you know what I mean? They'll, they'll take anything. <laughs> Hand them to everybody. Uh, Bishop says to the X-Men, Dreamers. 
and the caption reads, They are the first words Bishop has uttered in more than a day. He clutches the young boy named Charles tightly to his chest, as if the child were, a literal, were literally in a sea of confusion. A life raft in a sea of confusion, sorry. The boy is the second son of Eric Magnus Lenshire, Magneto, and the X-Men wonder why he lets the madman hold this dearest child. Yeah, us too. We were wondering that too, yeah. Yeah. Now here, Magneto updates the X-Men and the readers of the day uh, what's going on in the other X-Family books. You know, quick and dirty here, Nightcrawler looks for Mystique in Excalibre. Mm -hmm. uh, Gambit and the gang look for the Emkron Crystal Shard in Gambit and the Externals. Rogue's team heads to Chicago to stop the Cullings in Astonishing X-Men, and Kitty and Colossus head to the Pacific Northwest in Generation Next. And uh, you already know that, too, because we've already read all of those just now. Hey, available in the archives? Well, once this episode is public. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then, Exodus uses his previously unknown powers of teleportation to take them to Maine, where we opened our story. While there, Quicksilver hangs around the human camps and even runs into that same family that Copycat chatted up back in the open. Uh, Storm is up in Newfoundland, uh, attempting to take out a defense tower so the human high council sentinels will be able to make it into, you know, swoop up all the humans and, and spirit them away. Uh, she whips up some cloud cover to shield the sentinels' entry. Back in Maine, the humans are watching the skies. That Graves boy from earlier runs to get a better vantage point and winds up getting snatched by Horseman Abyss. Then, the Sentinels start pouring in, which is not at all what the humans expected to see as their saviors, so they start to panic. Dazzler whips up a hard light Weapon X and Jean Grey to confuse the Sentinels, and the X-Men rush in to try to take control of the situation. And this looks to end pretty poorly for Iceman, a Sentinels blast the bejesus out of him. The X-Men then find themselves stood before the Brotherhood of Chaos, whose membership boasts Box, real name Madison Jeffries, eventually. Uh, <laughs> first appearance, Alpha Flight Number 1, August 1983, created by John Byrne. This is a mutant with the abilities to reshape metal, plastic, and glass, and to sort of speak to machines and technology. Uh, Madison Jeffries created the robot Box for Roger Box, B-O-C-H-S, a mechanic who lost the use of both his legs. Roger and the Machine Box were recruited to the Canadian super team Alpha Flight. Later, after tangling with Guardian of Alpha Flight, Box is shorted out and repaired by Jeffries, who adds a feature that allows Roger to merge with the robot. Eventually, Box, B-O-C-H-S, becomes uh, inextricable from the robot Box, B-O-X, so he enlists Madison's brother Lionel Jeffries to use his mutant power, which is manipulating flesh and bone, to extricate Roger from the robot. But Lionel had been accidentally turned insane by Madison, so he fuses himself with Roger Box, <laughs> then steps into the robot box to create Omega. All right. Madison Jeffries uses his powers to defeat Roger and Lionel and later merges with Box himself, improving his hardware and armor pretty much for this storyline. The very storyline, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got Spine with a Y. Real name unknown. First appearance, Cable, number 17, November 1994, cover date, created by Jeff Loeb and Steve Scrosi. Spine is a murderous cannibal mutant that looks like he's part snake, maybe. Uh, consequently, he's got snaky senses plus fang, scaly skin, and a spiked tail. Uh, he's without humanity and doesn't have a secret identity. He was a member of the Dark Riders, which was one of uh, Apocalypse's earlier crews. There's also Arclight, which is a new character. However, 
one that shares a code name with Philippa Sontag, whose first appearance was Uncanny X-Men number 210, October 1986 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr. A Vietnam veteran Sontag suffers from PTSD, and she channels that and her mutant power, which is to cause shockwaves on contact with another person, into a rage-filled personality. Sometimes this contact crosses, causes a bright light that looks something like a welder's arc light. There you go. Uh, she's a member of the Marauders, a team of mutant assassins assembled by Mr. Sinister, first appearing in Uncanny X-Men number 210, October 1986, cover date, by Claremont and John Romita Jr. There's also Yeti, uh, first appearance, uh, maybe right now, unless we, uh, unless this is a take on the Prime Universe's Weapon Prime, P-R-I-M-E, who first appeared in X-Force number 11. June 1992 cover date, created by Fabian Niciesa, Rob Liefeld, and Mark Pasella. Oh, and don't forget the one that debuted in Fantastic Four 99 from 1970, who was an Inhuman. We don't, the... we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't talk about Inhumans here. Uh, oh, oh well. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now, th- this is indeed the first appearance of this Yeti, but uh, <laughs> tell you what, don't get too attached to him. And that's the end. That's it. All eight books, boy. Woo, in the can. Woo, Next week, come, <laughs> next week we have more to come. We are going to, uh, we're actually going to wrap up half the books. We're going to cover Astonishing X Men issues two through four, Factor X two through four, Generation Next two through four, Weapon X two through four, and X Men Chronicles one and two, uh, which I for some reason read out of order, so I am already <laughs> on that one, but. Uh, yeah, we are we are going through this age of apocalypse, folks, and boy, it just, it's getting more and more apocalyptic by the moment. Uh, I tell you, these this this X the deep dive into these X Men characters is illuminating and hilarious at times. Chris, I got to tell it you, is, sometimes, it is. It is. <laughs> like I've said before, you never really understand how funny comics are until you start talking about them aloud. You're like, well, that sure, was, that was a little <laughs> weird, but. Uh, if you have anything you want to say, or if you think we got something wrong in the bios or the stories, or you want your own Age of Apocalypse to come upon us, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. On Tumblr at cosmicteamailhistory.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at cosmicteamail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. You can find our weekly writings on DC Comic Books that are currently coming out on WeirdScienceDCComics.com. And you can see Chris's writings on DC Comics that aren't really currently coming out on his personal blog, ChrisIsAnInfiniteEarth.com, where he reviews a different DC comic from at any point in the time stream every single day. Uh, I think you're up to over 700 now, right? Over 900. Over 900. 900. We're in the home stretch here. God, it's, uh, like, it's almost like a child growing up. Time gotta get to flies. a thousand. Yeah, <laughs> and after a thousand, he's going to throw his computer out the window and go and be a hermit. So that'll be in that. Hole, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you can check out the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you'll find our show notes, as well as a, uh, what's that word where everything's in order? Uh, chronological listing. That's the one. <laughs> there you go. A chronolo- chronological listing of all of our past episodes and yeah. all of our episodes of Weird Comics History and all the silly stuff we do. Find that all there at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a pretty good chunk of show we give it up today. I think that's all we got for him. Chris, got anything else for him? I think that's it. Uh, well, folks, until next time, I want you to keep it on the treadmill apocalyptically. Oh, yeah. I tell you, I just ain't right. 
Every time I fail or we fight And I cannot explain what happens to me I've ruined your life, yeah, I know you'll agree I took from you everything but your diamond ring When I slept with your sister, beat up your dad Told your mama her cooking was bad Hooked up with your best friend on our wedding night Should have walked in on a threesome without knowing.